So it's September 19, 2013 in Honolulu, Hawaii, and this is part one of practical service, which is the key to advancement. So today, we're going to be looking at how service is the essence of life, and really the essence of bhakti. We're going to be looking at what, what is service in its most essential features, what does it mean to do service? Then tomorrow night, Krishna willing, we'll be examining how to do service in the nine processes. The nine processes in the 64 angas of bhakti. And then on Saturday night, right before we go out in Harinam, we'll be looking at how to do service in the world in terms of our, what we call our varna and ashram, in terms of our various talents, how to engage all our talents in Krishna's service. So we're going to be looking at tonight how service is the essence of bhakti. First, we're going to look at how service is the essence of life. Srila Prabhupada said, our sanatan dharma, our essential being, what we are, our essential definition, is a servant. So people often talk about, I have to do this, I have to do that. But really, there's only two things we have to do. They might say, well, I have to run to the store right now, or I have to take care of my mother, or I have to do this. There's only two things we have to do. Do you know what they are? I'm asking you. Catch? No, you don't have you to have catch. You have to breathe. Really. Yeah. Well, you have to live. Yeah, you have to breathe, yes. Well, you don't have to breathe because the body has to breathe, and we're a soul, and the soul doesn't have to breathe. Well, that's what we're supposed to do, and that's what we have to do. What we have to do is we have to live. Krishna says, never was there a time when I did not exist, nor you, nor all these kings, nor in the future, so any of us cease to be. So the first thing we have to do is we have to live. We cannot stop living. If yeah, someone says, work. well, I'm going to stop, I'm going to commit suicide, yeah. does that mean they stop living? No, if you commit suicide, then simply the body stops functioning, but the mind, intelligence, and ego go on, and the soul goes on. And even if you merge into the Brahma Jodi and you don't have a subtle body, still the soul is always there. The soul is always alive and we're always an individual. So we have to live. And the second thing we must do, we have to do, besides always being alive, we don't have a choice. We can't say, I'm going to be dead now. I'm not going to exist. And the other thing we must do is we must... Work. Well, not exactly work. Serve. serve. We have to serve. We ha and serving yeah. means to give. Serving means to give. We are, our intrinsic nature is as givers. That's our dharma. We must give. Prabhupada says like the dharma of sugar is to be sweet. If someone gives you sugar and it's not sweet, it's not sugar. It can't be sugar and not be sweet. That's not possible. It can't be salty and, it can't be salt and not be salty. You can't say, here's salt, it's not salty. So to be alive means to give, to serve. 
And those are the two things we must do. We don't have an option. We can't say, I'm going to opt out of existing or I'm going to opt out of serving. Anything else is a choice. Anything else we say, I have to, we're not being truthful. Would you like the microphone? Uh, I wouldn't mind it. Okay. Sure. Yeah. We, I couldn't figure out how to set it up, but sure. That would be lovely. So that is because, of course, God's essence is a giver. God is ultimately a giver. Krishna says that he's the supreme enjoyer, that Krishna is the one who's supposed to enjoy all of the sacrifices and austerities that anybody does. But that doesn't mean that God is a taker. God is a giver. But we got some kind of hum here that sounds awful. Now, how can we know that God is a giver? Because everything everyone has is being given by God, yes? God is the enjoyer of all of our sacrifices, but even if I do an incredible amount of sacrifice, I'm never going to do as much sacrifice that God will take as he will give. He'll always give me far, far more than he's going to take from me. Does that make sense to all of us? I mean, what do I have to give to Krishna, and what is he giving to me? He's giving to me, you know, beyond... Don't make that funny noise. Yeah, I'd rather no mic at all than the noise. Either, no, yeah, okay. just, just you know. Thanks for trying. So this is also Krishna. Krishna is also giving. This is the exchange of love. And Krishna is a supreme giver. Krishna is giving everything to every living entity eternally. Krishna is giving to his pure devotees. Krishna is giving to the sinners. Krishna is giving to everyone always. And we, as part of Krishna, Mamai Vamsa Jiva Loke Jiva Bhutta Sanatana, we are also have this nature of giving or service. And if, if we examine honestly, Prabhupada would make this point frequently, we'll see that even in situations where we think that we're taking, we're really giving. Prabhupada would give the example of the President of the United States at that time was Nixon. He said, Nixon thinks, well, I'm the boss of the country but actually he was a servant of the country because as soon as the people in the country said, you know, we don't want you anymore, then he was out of a job. So the man may think, you know, I'm the master of the castle. Sometimes in Indian weddings, on the day of the wedding, the groom is riding on a horse, and sometimes he's even wearing a big crown, and there's a joke, you know, king for a day, slave for a lifetime. <laughs> I don't know if you want to use that in the wedding. Stay away from my wedding. Don't get to your weddings. <laughs> so the man thinks, I'm the master of the castle. You know, I'm the king of the castle. This is my home. My wife is here to serve me. You know, the old-fashioned view of marriage, I don't know if anybody follows us anymore, is that, you know, the man worked all day and he comes home and his wife puts on his slippers and brings him something to drink and something to read and something to eat and just waits on him hand and foot. Right? So the man may think, oh, I'm the master. But what's he doing all day? He's serving his wife and children. He's providing for them. And whatever position we're in, it's like that. We may think, I'm the master, but if we examine, we'll see that we're really the servant. Or the examples given of a pet you know, you may think, oh, well, this animal, it's my servant. We used to have slugs in our garden. You know what slugs are? They're like snails without shells, and they were eating our plants. 
So we were trying to think of what we were going to do to get rid of them, and I did some research that ducks eat slugs. So we bought two ducks, and they did eat the slugs. Uh, they were very, they got, they got rid of so many slugs that we didn't, after we got rid of the ducks, <laughs> then we didn't have any slugs for at least five years after that. We had to get rid of the ducks because after they ate all the slugs, then they started stepping on the plants. They wouldn't eat the plants, but they would step on them and they did more damage than the slugs did. But anyway, when we had these ducks as pets, I remember uh, I was the main person taking care of them, myself, and then after that, the kids. My husband didn't do much to take care of them, but somehow they really were attached to him. And they could recognize the sound of his vehicle when he would come home from work. As soon as he'd round the corner to our street, they'd rattle over to the gate as fast as they could, and they would crack and crack and crack and crack to greet him. And he always said it was so lovely when he came home from work to be greeted like that with such enthusiasm. Quack, 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 quack. So people get this, this animal so that when they come home, the dog jumps on them, you know, and is is hugging them and licking them, and they think, oh, this animal is serving me. But really, you're the servant of the animal. You have to feed them, you have to make sure they have a proper place to, you know, pass your stool, and they have a comfortable place to live. If you go anywhere for any length of time, someone else has to take care of them. You're always thinking of their welfare. As one of my friends told me, you had an animal. At first, they're cute, and after that, it's work. So if you examine, we're always servants. Now, materially speaking, we don't like the idea of being servants. It says that the demons are envious of themselves. Prabhupada comments this in the 16th chapter of Bhagavad Gita. And when I read that, I thought, how can you be envious of yourself? If you're envious, that means that you want harm to come to someone else. I want to take something, we're talking about that, this morning, I, I want to take something from you, and I, I want to own it. You know, ultimately, envy manifests in the form of stealing. That you don't want to give me something. You know, I, I'm, you've worked hard for your money, and I want to go and just take it and have it for myself. So, someone who's envious of you—they're malicious. They wish you harm. They want to enjoy at your expense. So, how can you be envious of yourself? How does that make any sense? But if our self is naturally a servant. And if we hate the fact that we're a servant, then we're envious of our own self. And I, I remember my mother used to say to me, she said, when I, when I go to pray at, at, the, at the synagogue, at the temple, I, she said, I don't say any of the prayers that says we're a servant of God. She said, I don't want to think of myself as a servant of God. So that's hating your own self. It's hating your own nature. And in fact, a lot of psychology is based on the fact that people's illnesses and people's problems in life is because they don't like themselves. I'm sure you've heard that in psychology. You should learn to like yourself, to forgive yourself, and, and so forth. But what is the essence of ourself that we don't like? We don't like the fact that we're servants. That's why we've come to this world. We want to be the masters. In fact, we define loving relationships as to what extent someone else serves me. I mean, if you notice, when do we get angry at, or disgusted or you know, frustrated in our so-called loving relationships is when the other person doesn't act as my servant, when they don't do what I want, how I want, the way I want it. I, this is a hard thing to say, but it's, if you start looking at that, you know, when do I feel really like, oh, this person's driving me crazy, I don't like them anymore, I don't want to be around them, or we get angry at them, think about it. 
It's when they don't do what I want them to do, how I want them to do, when I want them to do it. They're not being a good servant in life. This means we resent the fact we're trying to be the master. We don't realize, of course, that the real master, Krishna, is a giver. The real master, Krishna, is not a taker. The real master, Krishna, is finding pleasure at giving to his devotees, and giving to his parts and parcels. That's how he enjoys. He doesn't enjoy just by being a taker. So in our imitation of him, our, our meager attempt to imitate him, we do something that is not him at all. Now in bhakti yoga, the essence of what we're trying to do is revive our relationship with Krishna as a loving, willing, happy giver. If you want to say, what is the essence of bhakti? So we're going to look at this definition of bhakti by Rupa Goswami in Bhakti Vasamrita Sindhu. That's such a nice name, Bhakti Vasamrita Sindhu. Sindhu means an ocean. So here in Honolulu, we're very familiar with the concept of an ocean. Here we are, practically right smack dab in the middle of the biggest ocean, and we are the, I believe that we are the furthest in miles from any other inhabited land. Most isolated place on Earth. Most isolated place on Earth in terms of miles. I don't think we're the most isolated place on Earth in terms of hours of travel. I think there are some mountain dwellers where you have to travel more than five hours. You can't swim home from here. To get there. Uh, So with airplanes, you can get here faster than you can to some other inhabited areas. But in terms of of physical miles, we're the most isolated place. So all we see is ocean. We have some real concept here in Hawaii of the vastness of the ocean. So an ocean, bhakti rasamrita, rasa is, is taste. Uh, rasa, is, it's a very difficult word to translate. In Ayurveda, it means the, the liquid taste. When your food is, is digested to the ultimate degree, it becomes rasa. What, the ultimate nourishment of your body in the form of liquid. And any tastes are involving liquid. We talk about this quite a lot. Not only what you taste on your tongue. You know, We do an experiment in elementary school where you dry off your tongue with a paper towel and then you put like sugar or salt and can't taste it. There has to be liquid on your tongue in order for you to taste. And the same with all the other senses. You, all of our senses are lubricated. You know, Our skin has to have oil. Right? We were at that shop today looking at... at lotions and oil. So you have, your skin has to have oil. If your skin's all dried out, you can't get any satisfaction from the sense of touch. The same with your eyes. We have to be lubricated in our nose and our ears and so forth. So this rasa is this liquid taste, this liquid pleasure. And Rupa Goswami analyzes that this pleasure has seven, uh, seven secondary varieties and five main varieties, altogether 12 varieties of pleasure. Just like if we talk about physical tastes of the tongue, there are six tastes, sweet, salty, sour, bitter, pungent, and astringent. Amrita. Amrita means death. Amrita means not death, or life, or nectar. So this, And rasa is very much connected with the idea of, of life and nourishment in a very technical sense. So there's a, an ocean. Not just like you get a little cup. You know, we call our fruit juices and whatever drink we serve out at our feast, we usually call it nectar. (laughs) On the higher planets, they really do have nectar. 
which causes you to keep, it's like a, a tonic that causes your body to stay youthful and full of vitality. So this rasa is, is the taste of life, the taste of vitality, all variety of pleasure, and there's a whole ocean of it. And this ocean is bhakti. So what is this essence of bhakti? That, that's an ocean of all varieties of pleasure that give life and vitality. So he gives this definition. Anya bilashita shunyam jnanakama anavritam anukulenam krishnanushilunam bhakti uttamam. So not only bhakti, but bhakti uttamam. Tamam means ignorance, uttamam means above ignorance. We can say the highest form, the purest form of bhakti. And we're going to look at this word shilanam. So there's a lot in this definition, but we're going to be focusing today and the next two nights on this shilanam. So shilana means action. You're doing something. You're doing something. We're also going to be looking these next few days at Nectar of Instruction, text 3, where Prabhupada says that bhakti is active work. It's not just, he says here, bhakti, this is an NOI text 3 purport. Prabhupada says bhakti is a sort of cultivation. As soon as we say cultivation, we must refer to activity. Cultivation of spirituality does not mean that sitting down idly for meditation, as some pseudo-yogis teach. Such idle meditation may be good for those who have no information of devotional service. And for this reason, it is sometimes recommended as a way to check distracting materialistic activities. Meditation means stopping all nonsensical activities, at least for the time being. Devotional service, however, not only puts an end to all nonsensical mundane activities, but also engages one in meaningful devotional activities. So this bhakti or service means you're doing something. You don't stop activities. You do this is Shilanam. You're doing something. So I'm going to look at the commentary of Jiva Goswami on this word Shilanam. He says the significance of the verbal word shil is twofold. Pravritti Atmaka, expressing action to worship practice and serve, and nivritti atmaka, expressing non-action, to be intensely absorbed. Thus, anushilanam, or continuous service, has an active form, rupa, using the body, words, or mind, and an emotional form, bhavarupa, consisting of affection, priti, and despair, vishada, of the mind. So what are the components of this activity? this service for Krishna, which restores us to our original condition of service, who we really are, and the original object of service, Krishna. So first it exists on the platform of obvious or explicit or overt action. And that exists on three platforms, the body, the mind, and speech. And we're going to have this as a running theme over the next three days, that what service you're doing with your body, what service you're doing with your mind, and what service you're doing with your words all need to be there. Sometimes we think that devotional service just means the body. You know, I clean the temple, I cook the offerings, I dress the deities, I distribute the books. Or maybe we think it just even means the body and the speech. You know, I chant Hare Krishna, I talk about Krishna, but it also means the mind. 
I think about Krishna, I hear about Krishna, I meditate on Krishna. Now, of course, the mind has three activities, thinking, feeling, and willing. So the mind is composed of thoughts, emotions, and desires. But here, Jiva Goswami is looking not only at the thoughts, emotions, and desires in in terms of body, mind, and speech, but he's looking at what he says is an inactive form of activity. An inactive form of activity. Because he's saying this activity has two levels. It has the active form in body, mind, and speech, and then it has an inactive form. In other words, not something that's externally noticeable. On the platform of emotion, two emotions, affection and despair. Affection and despair, Jiva Goswami says. So a feeling of affection for Krishna and a feeling of despair in separation for Krishna. So our service for Krishna has to be executed on all of these levels if we are really going to be engaged in pure bhakti. Now again, tomorrow we're going to be looking at the nine processes and the 64 angas, and Krishna willing, I have a little activity we're all going to do on the 64 angas and body, mind, and speech, which I hope you all enjoy. And then the next day we're going to be looking at what I think is really far out, how we can serve Krishna according to our activities in the world. Not just the nine processes, but according to our nature in the world. But before we can look at that, we really have to get into what is this mood of service. If we're just working on an external platform with our body and speech, we're not really getting what bhakti is. Another really nice quote in this connection is in Prabhupada's purport to Bhagavad Gita 10.10, where he says, the qualification is that a person always engage himself in Krishna consciousness and with love and devotion render all kinds of services. You should perform some work for Krishna and that work should be with love. It's very possible to do service without the mood of affection and without a mood of service. And I apologize for those of you who can't see me, but one of my good friends demonstrated it very visually. And he said, it's the difference between serving like this and serving like this. So for those of you who can't see me, the first way is is like if you if you put out your hand with your palm facing down, I'm going to give you something. I'm I'm going to do something for you. Or if you put out your hand with your palm facing up, I'm going to offer something to you. So it's very possible to do service without a mood of affection and despair. First of all, it's very possible just to do service with the body and without the words and the mind. That's called Krishna Karmadi. You're doing some work for Krishna. But you're talking about other things and you're thinking about other things. So you're not really in bhakti if that's the, the situation. Like Prabhupada was asked, right here in Hawaii, 
Do you make faster advancement if you live in the temple? Prabhupada said that depends on whether or not his mind is on another subject matter. So if one's doing some work for Krishna with one's body, but one's talking about other things, or one's thinking about other things, that's work for Krishna. It will eventually bring one to bhakti, but it's not really bhakti. Bhakti means you're serving with your body, your speech, and your mind. And of course, this means serving Krishna and Krishna's devotees. So if I'm serving you with my body, but with my speech, I'm denigrating you. Is that service? No. If I'm serving you with my body and my speech, but in my mind I'm denigrating you, is that service? No, not really. Not really. You know, if the wife is, is cooking for her husband and saying I love you in her mind, she's thinking of the other man she's going to meet at 9 o'clock at night, that's not service. Or if in her mind she's thinking, you lazy bum, I can't stand you. You know, <laughs> can't wait until I can do something else. That's not service. We all know that when we're, we're the recipient of it. You know, that's not authentic. So to be bhakti, it's got to be body, mind, and speech. But it also has to be of a certain mood. So if I have the mood that I am so great, and I am serving out of my greatness, this is the mood of a lot of philanthropists. Sometimes devotees think that giving charity is mostly in the mode of goodness. It's not. Giving charity is mostly in the mode of passion. The big philanthropists, the big charity givers, are generally in the mode of passion, not in the mode of goodness. I'm going to do good for the world. I'm going to help the world, like our richest man in America, Bill Gates. He said, I can do much better good for the world out of church on Sunday than I can in church on Sunday. He's thinking, I can do more good for the world by spending my money than by worshiping God. One is then giving, but with the mood of God. Remember, God is a giver. He's a supreme giver. But God is the giver as master. God is the giver that I have everything. And out of my kindness, out of my mercy, I am giving to you. Although God is a supreme giver, he's giving like that. I am great and you are small and out of my mercy I am giving to you. There's a kind of pleasure in that, isn't there? You know, the rich person who goes to the third world countries and has uh, pity for the beggar in the street. Oh, I have, you know, $10,000 in my bank account and you have nothing. Out of my great kindness I will give to you. That is the mood of God. If we give like that, we're not in our constitutional position. And you can also tell when someone's giving to you like that, isn't it? We call it patronizing or condescending. If we come and think, I'm so great, I'm so qualified, I'm so talented, I have so much to offer. Everyone in the International Society for Krishna Consciousness should feel grateful for everything I'm giving. That's in the mode of passion. 
That's not service. I mean, it's counted as something because you're giving to Krishna, but that's not bhakti. So bhakti's got to be with the body, the words, and the mind, and it's got to be with this mood that I am the servant. Now, I'll, I'll admit openly that once I realized this, I also realized that I usually got it wrong. That my mood was usually, I'm so great and everybody should be so happy for all the service that I'm doing. They should all come to me and say, oh, Amila, thank you so much for sacrificing your valuable time and your infinite whatever to help us poor little things. And that often that's what I was looking for. And it's quite interesting that often devotees will complain when they don't get that. They'll say, I've given so much. I've sacrificed so much. I had so much to give. I'm so wonderful. And people aren't recognizing and appreciating me. So why should I give anymore? I hear this all the time, all over the world. Well, I don't want to come to that temple anymore. I don't want to give anything anymore. I gave for so many years. I worked so hard for that money that I gave. And I'm so talented and I'm so qualified and I gave so much and nobody appreciated. That means you're giving like this. You're thinking everything belongs to me and out of my mercy and my kindness, I'm rendering some service. Those people need me so much. The temple needs me so much. That's not bhakti. I'm the great giver, benedictine world. That's not bhakti. That's trying to be God. And once I realized this, at least a little bit, I can't say I didn't realize it, but once I started to realize this, then I saw how rarely I was really being a servant. A few months ago, I was in Bloomfinton, which means literally bloom fountain, fountain of, of blooms, fountain of roses in South Africa. There was a small preaching center run by one family. And the, the wife was constantly in the kitchen. It was a very kitchen cooking preaching center, something like this. Everything was just based around prasadam distribution. The whole, that was the engine of the whole center. And very, very similar to this. They had a little restaurant in the center where people would come and eat at the center. You know, a few tables, not like a big uh, restaurant that seat 200 people or something like that. And then they did prasadam distribution for the university. And it was the wife who did the lion's share of the cooking. Of course, she had some assistance from other devotees. So she was in that kitchen morning till night, morning till night, morning till night, morning till night. And everything she cooked was just incredible, just variety. And she was really, really expert. And you could see she really enjoyed cooking. Whenever she was in the kitchen, she was smiling, she was singing, she was chanting. It was just such an atmosphere. And the temple was in just basically a house, a large house. It was, and it was set up so the kitchen was geographically the center, whoever had designed that house, of the house. So wherever you would go, you would go through the kitchen. So wherever I'd go, I'd always see her cooking. And she was always just full of, of so much light and, and love in the kitchen. I, I was there for about, I guess, about four days. 
And the last day I was there, I was sitting right there by the kitchen watching her, and I had this overwhelming feeling of affection and thinking, I really want to serve her. Not like this, but like this. What can I do to help? And I didn't feel that way because I felt obligated, because I felt I should, just because, because, because I was so inspired by her. And, and not in, a, in an awe and reverent way, but in a very affectionate way. And the feeling didn't last very long, it lasted just for a few minutes. But I thought, oh, that's it! That's what I'm looking for. That's what I want to have. It was such a wonderful feeling. It, it filled me with, you know, warm fuzzies kind of thing. Where I felt very alive. Because that's what rasa is, as we were saying in the beginning. Rasa is what makes you feel alive. It fills you with pleasure. And I thought, yes, that is what we're looking for. That feeling towards Krishna and towards Krishna's devotees. And my dear friends, we can go on for days and weeks and months and years thinking we're we're serving and we're in bhakti. And if we're not feeling like that, we're not really doing bhakti. We're doing something else. We're doing some mixed bhakti. So certainly we should be busy, and we're going to get into tomorrow and the next day how we should be busy. Again, tomorrow we're going to talk about how we should be busy in the nine processes, and the next day how we should be busy according to our varna and ashram. Certainly we should be busy, busy in the temple, busy in Prabhupada's mission, busy in our life in ways that further Srila Prabhupada's mission and further our service. And we should keep our body busy in Krishna's service and we should keep our speaking busy in Krishna's service, and we should keep our mind busy in Krishna's service. But we should also have this externally intangible, externally inactive action that, as Jiva Goswami says, is not action. This mood of affection and despair for Krishna and for the devotees. That I really care about Krishna and the devotees. How can this despair, how can I do more for them? How can I do more for them? They are great. I am not some great person with something to give these poor souls who are dependent on my greatness and should be eternally grateful for how I am willing out of my mercy to sacrifice my time and energy and money. But they are great, and I am privileged to be given an opportunity to assist. So how to cultivate that mood, which is what we're looking for. That's the Rasamrita Sindhu. As long as we have this idea that I am the great one who out of my kindness is sacrificing something for which I want accolades and recognition. We're never going to taste this ocean of Ras Amrita, no matter how hard we work and how busy we are. You can work in the temple 14 hours a day, 16 hours a day. And if the mood isn't right, my dear friends, are you going to feel his bitterness? I'm sorry. And we've seen this. 
You know, that's also charity in the mode of passion. Where Prabhupada says charity in the mode of passion, 18th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, is given at the request of a superior with regret afterwards. And somebody can, can work hard for Krishna and the devotees, but if they're working hard without this mood of affection and despair, if they're working hard with this mood that I'm great and I'm giving out of my infinite kindness to people who are lower than I am, who should be appreciating me, then at the end there's just bitterness and regret. Why did I give so much? I shouldn't have done that. I should have done something else. I never got the appreciation that I'm due. And I hear this over and over and over and over, all over the world. The devotees didn't appreciate me enough. They don't recognize my sacrifices. They're not loving me enough. I hear it all the time. And this is, frankly, the source of most of our criticism of our authorities in this country, regardless of their real faults because we all have faults, my friends. But our main bitterness is that, because we're giving in the wrong mood. It's the main source of our bitterness in our families, between husband and wife, between parents and children, between disciple and guru. People will get critical of their gurus. He didn't recognize me enough. He didn't appreciate me enough. I wasn't treated nicely. So how do we cultivate this other mood? What do we want? The ocean of bitterness and poison and regret? Or do we want the ocean of rasa, amrita, of taste, of this infinite variety of tastes that gives us life and vitality? So this means to meditate on the greatness of Krishna and the greatness of Krishna's devotees such that we feel inspired to help them and that we consider it's an honor and a privilege to help and that helping and that service is our reward. As Krishna said to the gopis, let your service be its own reward. Now again, I'm sure we've experienced this sometimes when we were so much in love with some, something genuine where we really cared about someone and we just wanted to help them because we cared about someone and our service to them was itself the reward even if they didn't notice it. Even if nobody noticed it. Even if we didn't get anything back. Just that feeling of service was itself the reward. Prabhupada talks about this with a mother and a little baby. I think this is especially true in the first six weeks of life. When the baby gives you absolutely no reciprocation. Starting at about six weeks, they smile at you. But those first six weeks, they give you no reciprocation. They basically don't even know you're there as a separate person. You're, you're totally the servant of this child. Prabhupada talks about that the mother's love is a pure love because they're not expecting any return. The happiness the mother's getting at that time is just from the service itself. So I'm sure we've all had some little glimpse of this, like I had that little glimpse in Bloomington. And this means meditating on the greatness of others rather than on our own greatness. And it's interesting how difficult that seems to be for most of us. 
you know, when people complain to me about so-and-so devotee, oh, that Krishna Das, that Krishna Dasi, and I say, well, can you see the good in them? And sometimes there's a long silence. Uh, what good? How interesting that we don't have difficulty meditating on the good in ourselves, although we know we have so many faults. Yes? Do we all have so many faults? Yes? Uh, maybe you guys don't, but I do. I mean, if I were to write a book of my faults, it'd be a long book. But still, I can meditate on what's good about myself. I don't have a problem with that at all. So why can't we meditate on what's good in others? Now, Prabhupada wrote this lovely letter, I think it was to a Trey Rishi, about how even though the devotees are full of faults because they're persons, still, those faults don't matter because they've dedicated themselves to Krishna's service. I mean, Krishna is so amazing that he sees the good qualities in Putana, who came to kill him. Would you see any good qualities in someone who came to kill you? If someone came to kill you by poisoning a cup of milkshake, would you see, well, at least they were offering me some food? Would you see that? You know? Come to my house for dinner. Here is some nice food for you to eat, but there's poison in the milkshake. Would you say, well, they have good qualities because they invited me over for dinner. Are you kidding? But that's how Krishna thinks. He thinks, well, Putin offered me her breast to stop. So she's my mom, mommy. Amazing. So Krishna's, that's Krishna's view. Krishna sees the good when someone says, oh, those nasty Hare Krishnas. Oh, they said my name. <laughs> you know, if somebody says, oh, that nasty Umila, I don't say, wow, they're thinking of me. I don't see any good in them at all. So this is Krishna's view. And it's, it's interesting in the uh, fourth canto Bhagavatam, in the discussion between Daksha and Lord Shiva. So Vishnu Chakravati Thakur gives his description of one who sees good qualities and one who sees bad qualities. And he says the lowest level is if you see someone's faults as potential good qualities. That's the lowest level of seeing the good in others. You see their faults, but you see, well, if they were used another way, they could be good qualities. The next higher level is you see both the faults and the good qualities, but you focus your attention on the good qualities. The next is you don't see the faults, you only see the good qualities. And the highest level is even if there's no good qualities, you see them anyway. You somehow see this is a soul, they're a part of Krishna. So to, if we're going to really engage in bhakti for Krishna and the devotees, we meditate on Krishna and we meditate on the devotees such that we feel inspired and we feel affectionate. And we all know how to do this. All of us have somebody or something in life that we're attached to and we feel affectionate for. And with that person or that thing, we meditate on the good. That's what we do. How do parents love obnoxious children? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever seen parents with really obnoxious children and the parents still love them? How do they love them? Because they, they see the good in them. Even when there's not much good to see, they see the good in them. We all know how to do that. We've all done that. 
Now, with Krishna, there's only good, so it's easy to meditate on the good. And factually, with anyone who's trying to serve Krishna, the good far outweighs the bad. And anyone who's trying to serve Krishna, it's just going to be a matter of a, a second of universal time before they're pure and in the spiritual world. Even if that person's going to take another three, four lifetimes, each lifetime is only eight billionths of a second for Lord Vermont. So even if you see some devotee who's really struggling and has some obnoxious habits, abhichetsu chavachara. You see, this person, it's just going to be a matter of, you know, a few billions of a second before they're dancing with Krishna in the forest of Vrindavan. So this is bhakti, this is service. And whenever we come to do something, if we're sweeping the floor, we're washing the pots, we're making the sabji, we're making the garlands, we're distributing books, we're leading the kirtan, it should always be with the mood that these are great souls. Krishna is great, Prabhupada is great, all these souls are great. How fortunate I am that even though I'm nothing, I'm allowed to do some service for them. They're allowing me to render something. And my satisfaction is in that. My satisfaction isn't in being recognized for my greatness as a philanthropist. So this is bhakti, this mood of affection and despair. How can I ever serve enough? How can I ever get enough with the devotees? Then we can be talking about Uttam Bhakti. Of course, there's other aspects of Uttam Bhakti which I'm not going to talk about tonight, and, and I don't even want to discuss them at all. On Yabhilasita Sunyam, Gyanakama, Anabhutam, Anukulena. I don't want to talk about that aspect of the definition of Bhakti tonight. I just really want to focus on this Anushilana, this aspect of activity. So this is the mood. And if the mood's not there, then the things we'll talk about tomorrow and the next day are only going to help us after a very, 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 very long time. So again, tomorrow we'll talk about the 64 Angas. Hopefully we'll do our little game and the nine processes. And the next day we'll talk about serving Krishna in the world, but with this mood. That I'm serving Krishna with my body. I'm serving Krishna, Krishna and the devotees with my body. I'm serving Krishna and the devotees with my speech. I'm serving Krishna and the devotees with my mind. And my inner mood is that of affection and despair. That there's, there's real emotion there. That I have this mood of a servant. And when we do that, we are swimming, not just in the Pacific Ocean, which is awfully big, but in an unlimited ocean. And an unlimited ocean of amrita, of vitality, of life, of strength, of health and energy, and of rasa of all varieties of tastes of pleasure. Every variety of taste that one can imagine. And all we have to do is flick this switch from I'm the great to I'm the servant. That's it. It's not, it's not some big fancy thing. So we could have, I'm gonna stop at 6.30 for the art team. We have any questions, comments, discussions, additions, subtractions, etc. It doesn't seem that. Wait, well, we have a question here first. We have a question here first. No, go ahead first. Yes, go ahead. No, no, the person in the room here. Switch to switch, but we've been 
I mean, for, we call so sweet, which we don't really, can't fully understand at this time, they've cautiously left Krishna out of envy and for billions upon billions of, of innumerable births, we've been envious against Krishna, trying to usurp his position. It doesn't seem that easy to just flip the switch and feel affection, and affection is a real mm. emotion from the heart. Brahmananda, back in the early days, one time... One second. Can all of you who's listening all the, on the computer, can you hear Narahari Prabhu or no? Okay, so let me repeat what he said. Let me repeat what you said so far. Okay, so you said, as hopefully I'll get it right, that it doesn't seem so easy because for so many billions of years we've been envious of Krishna. So flicking Causal, that, our causelessly, causeless unwillingness to serve, and therefore it doesn't seem so easy to flick that switch. And I was going to give the example that uh, Brahmananda, in the early days, one time everyone was offering obeisances to Prabhupada. He said, Prabhupada, sometimes I don't feel like offering obeisances. Should I do it anyway? Okay, so Narayak was giving the example that Brahmananda uh, said to Prabhupada, everyone's offering obeisances, but sometimes I don't feel like it. Should I do it anyway? And Prabhupada said, yes. And Prabhupada said, yes, you should do it. So it seems that, of course, Prabhupada was understand that would come in time. It doesn't seem like that can just, there's, I, I, tell me where the switch is so I can turn the Okay, so on. you're saying the Prabhupada said it would come in time and where is the switch? My answer to that is to be, is we got to know what we're trying to do. So even if you're going to say it's going to come in time, you have to have a goal, you have to have a sadhya. You have to know where you're going. What are you trying to achieve in bhakti? Otherwise, you won't notice if you're getting there or not. Exactly like if you're going to make a, a physical journey from one location to another. Like today, Yugala Rasa took me out to a certain store that I wanted to go to. So you have to know where you're going. You have a very, a very specific you know, destination. I want to get to this place. And then there's landmarks. Like if you give somebody directions, you say, okay, turn at this street, you'll see the street sign, or here, it's over here, it looks like this, it looks like this. So we want to know what is pure bhakti, what does it look like, what does it feel like, so that we can intentionally cultivate it, just like we were reading from Nectar of Instruction, text 6, where Prabhupada says bhakti is a sort of cultivation. What am I cultivating? So Prabhupada would say you see a small spark, you fan it. When we have those moments of the real thing, we want to fan it. But in order to do that, you've got to know what is the, what is the moment you're looking for. Um, another example would be if you want to train an animal. Let's say you want to train a chicken to dance. Okay? Who want to train a chicken to dance? So how do you do that? You want to train a chicken to move in a clockwise direction. So what you're going to do, you're going to watch the chicken... And if it takes a step to the right, you give it a piece of coin. And the chicken's figuring out, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And then again, the next time it takes a step to the right, you give it a piece of coin. Pretty soon the chicken figures out, oh, if I take one step to the right, I get a piece of coin. Now once the chicken figures that out and starts regularly taking a step to the right, you stop giving it a piece of coin for one step to the right. Then the chicken thinks, well, now what do I have to do? Then if the chicken accidentally takes two steps to the right, you give it a piece of coin. You reward little things in the right direction until your chicken is going in circles. Does this, this make sense to everybody? 
But if you don't know what's the ultimate behavior you want from the chicken, how are you going to know what little steps in that direction to reward? The trainer has to have already in mind, I want my chicken to make a circle in a clockwise direction. So we have to know what is it that I'm trying to achieve here? What is my goal? My goal is to be serving Krishna and the Vaishnavas with body, minds, and words with the mood of affection and despair. That's my goal. So whenever there's a little bit of movement in that direction, fan it. And then a little bit more movement in that direction, fan it. Otherwise, if you don't know what you're trying to achieve, then you, you can be taking yourself in the wrong direction and you'll be patting yourself on the head that, you know, like a, a one devotee said, oh, I've now chanted my 16 rounds for 108 days. So that, you know, I got out my calculator and I thought, how many days have I been chanting 16 rounds now? You know, I calculated it. It's been more than 14,600. But is that the point? I mean, not that I should, but that's not important. Is that the point? I, you know, I have waved so many sticks of incense. You follow what I'm saying? So we don't want to have, we don't want to fall into the trap that, well, because it's a gradual process and it'll come eventually, I'm just going to kind of wait for it, for it to fall on me. I'm just going to do things, you know, I'm just going to serve with my body, with my words I'm going to be offensive, with my mind I'm going to be offensive, I'm not going to have any awareness of what my mood is, and I'm just going to go on and figure everything's going to fall on my head one day. One day I'm going to jump out of bed and say, oh, Krishna, I love you. <laughs> but it's an intentional sort of cultivation. It's an intentional sort of cultivation. So we've got to know what, what is bhakti. How are we going to cultivate it if you don't know what it is? And then cultivate it in yourself and in others. Is that, is that a reasonable answer for your question? Okay, somebody over our vast electronic network here. If I can. One second, let me plug in the right thing here in the right place. We have three questions lined up. So, Kandita, uh, you were first. Okay, um, hi, Krishna. Um, Irmala, uh, now we're talking about like trying to find good qualities in everyone, um, no matter what. So if, if someone is uh, blaspheming or criticizing or fault finding other devotees, it, can we uh, still find good qualities in that? I mean, aren't there situations or, or persons that or devotees that? You know, that, that doesn't seem like a good idea. I, I hope I'm raising my question right. Probably not. Should we be avoiding them? Um, yes, you should be avoiding them, but you shouldn't be criticizing the criticizers for criticizing them. <laughs> let, me, let me blaspheme the blasphemers for their blasphemy. You know, that becomes rather ridiculous. <laughs> And, and Prabhupada would say that Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati was pleased with any article that mentioned Krishna's name, even if it was critical. So if somebody would write an article, Krishna is bad, Krishna is this, Krishna... Or, you know what's really interesting is in the Bhagavatam, 
these demons are saying all this terrible criticism of Krishna. And the acharyas take the criticism and turn it inside out and upside down to how the demons are actually praising Krishna, which is really fascinating. You know, where was I just reading that? Was it was Jarasandha or, or Rukmi? I can't remember. Um, Shishupal. I was just just listening to the the kidnapping of Rukmini, and one of those bad guys, can't remember which one it was, was saying how Krishna was um, he was the lowest of all persons instead of Purushottama, Purusha Adama. And Prabhupada says the Acharyas will say it, that the demons are saying Krishna is the lowest, but what they're really saying is Krishna pushes everyone else down, therefore he's the highest. So they, they say Sarasvati dances on their tongue. So the Acharyas take the words of the demons and twist them around so that they're really praising Krishna. So if somebody is blaspheming the devotees, at least they're saying the names of the devotees. That's nice. That doesn't mean we want to associate with them. We don't, we don't want to associate with them. But someone who says Krishna's name, we offer them all respect. So if somebody's going around, oh, that Krishna Das, he's really just an envious demon. Oh, that Krishna Dasi, she's really just a this and a this and this. Well, they're saying Krishna's name. You're meditating on the devotees. Eventually, even if you met Am Krodakama Sahaja Pranayati Bhitti Vatsali Muhuguru Vasavi Bhavai Samchinchi Chasram Sadrasim Tanamapurete Govinda Mari Purusham Kamaham Bhutami, even if you're meditating on Krishna with anger, with envy, now that's not bhakti, but how nice that they're meditating on the devotees. Eventually they'll become purified. And you can understand that people who are blaspheming the devotees, I mean, if it's devotees blaspheming the devotees, they're probably doing it because they're thinking this is my way to purify the movement and so forth. So we can, we can celebrate their uh, external intentions. But no, we don't associate with them, and we should try to rectify them if at all possible. But still we see that this person has some good intentions, or at least they're saying Krishna's name. And if a person has no good qualities, then at least you can see they're part and parcel of Krishna. Everyone is a part and parcel of Krishna. Therefore, everybody ultimately as a soul has all good qualities. Yes? There was a man who lived down the street and his daughter was friends with the devotees, but his, the, they would say, you can't go to the Hare Krishna temple. They were always saying this. Okay, one second. Let me repeat it. So, Madana here is saying there was a man who lived down the street and who was always telling their daughter, don't be friends with the devotees. Yeah. She, they, she couldn't come to the Krishna She couldn't come to the Krishna temple. Then, as an adult, she came. As, and she, then, as an adult, she started coming. When she was here one day, her father fell ill and went to the hospital and was leaving his body. So one day when she was here, her father got ill, went to the hospital, and was leaving his body. So we gave her tilak, radhakund, garland, neck beads, and tulsi. Okay, so then the devotees gave her tilak, radhakun, garlands, neck, beads and, neck beads, and tulsi for her dying father. And when he left his body, he was wearing them. And when he left his body, he was wearing them. So even though he had spent his his life criticizing the devotees. And now the mother, who was also in the same mood, has come to help do service. And then the mother, who was in that same mood before, has come to help do service. So even if you say Krishna's name like that eventually, but... Certainly we should keep our distance from blasphemers and just wish them well from a distance. So now we're going to have RT for Panchajatva. Thank you very much. All glories to Shri. <laughs>
Shri Uta Parakamalam, Shri Guru Vaishnavam's chat, Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sagamalagamatam becomes Tamsadivu. Sadvaitam Sadvaitam Krishna Saita Krishna Chaitanya Devam, Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sagamalavita Shri Vishakamatam's So yesterday we talked about service in general, how service is the Sanatana Dharma of the living entity, and how service is one of the essential features of the definition of pure bhakti. And then we talked about how this word shilanam, in Rupa Goswami's definition of bhakti, refers to two categories, according to Jiva Goswami's commentary of service. One, visible activities of the body, the speech, and the mind, thinking, feeling, and willing. And another would be the more esoteric or intangible aspect of the mind in terms of one's emotions of affection and also grief of hankering. So today and tomorrow we're going to look mostly at the external manifestations and today we're going to look at them in terms of the 64 items of bhakti that Rupa Goswami mentioned in, the, in his Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu and then tomorrow we're going to look at them in terms of what Prabhupada calls our conditional activities, our activities in the world according to the nature of our body and mind and how we can use those in service. So in the Nectar of Devotion, chapter 6, so those of you who are listening over the internet, you can see my screen. Uh, Those of you who aren't, you'll have to focus. (laughs) Rupa Goswami gives 64 items of bhakti. Now, I really would like you to concentrate on this because what we're talking about now is going to be the basis for a little exercise we're going to do. Do you guys have a pen? you guys have any pens or pencils? That would be helpful if you could have that. Okay, well, there might be some around that you can get. So Rupa Goswami is going to give 64 items, and first he's telling us the three most important, the three most important. So, um, anybody know what those three most important are? I think the two most important. What are always they? Always remember Krishna and never forget him. Always remember Krishna and never forget him. Well, that's really the whole basis of bhakti around which everything else revolves. So, the only reason we're doing any of this service is to always remember Krishna and never forget him. And, even more interesting, if you always remember Krishna and never forget him, you'll automatically do all these services of bhakti. So I, I find the second one to be more fascinating. If you're, na- if you're naturally thinking about Krishna, then you'll automatically do these things. There'll be automatic manifestations. You don't have to read about them in Rupa Goswami's book to do them, you'll just do them. And the purpose for doing them is this feeling, again, of developing this affection and separation mood from Krishna. But what is Rupa Goswami in the 64 Angas? Because always remember Krishna, never forget him, is not really one of the Angas. It's the essence of all of the Angas. So what is he mentioned as the three most important of the Angas? Does anybody know? Three. three most important. Hearing, chanting, remembering. Nope. Yes, yes, accepting a spiritual master. Sorry, I'm getting some from here, and if I put on the speaker, there'll be echoes. I'm just going to have to repeat. So all three of them have to do with guru. All three of the most important have to do with guru. 
So that's accepting the shelter of a guru, becoming initiated by the guru, and obeying the guru's instructions. Now, why are those the most important? Because if you don't do that, you can't really do anything else. You won't know what service is. You know, when we talk about doing service, service means that which is pleasing to the person being served, which goes back to the definition of bhakti, anukulyena, means that which is pleasing to Krishna, or at least has the intention of pleasing Krishna. And the Acharyas comment that when Mother Yasoda ties Krishna up, her intention is to please Krishna. And when the Kamsa's wrestlers fight with Krishna, their intention is not to please Krishna. So Krishna may be pleased by fighting with the wrestlers, and he may get angry at Mother Yasoda, but Mother Yasoda's behavior is bhakti because her intention is to please Krishna, and the wrestler's behavior is not bhakti because their intention is not to please Krishna. So to be bhakti, our actions have to have the intention of pleasing Krishna. And generally, if they have the intention of pleasing Krishna, of course, they will please Krishna. Now, how do we know who's going to please Krishna? You know, I can say, I have the intention of pleasing you. So I give the example that when I travel, I travel with just one very small suitcase. And people often gives me, give me gifts without first asking me what I would like. So they sometimes give me rather odd gifts. And recently when I was in India, someone gave me a set of towels, which would have filled up half my suitcase. You know, how did they ever think I was going to do with these towels? Or I was one place in Europe and someone gave me a very large glass bottle of olive oil. So again, I was thinking, you know, how am I going to put this in one little suitcase and travel with it around the world? And it's, it's interesting to me that people will, they'll do that. They'll give gifts. Or I remember one time there was a, a devotee event and everybody was giving gifts. And someone gave my son a China dog, a dog made out of China with blue flowers painted on it. So he looked at it and said, what am I going to do with this? And he has a lot of little children in the house. Not that he'd want a shiny dog even if he didn't have little children in the house. So if you're going to do something for somebody, you want to know what pleases them. You want to know what they like. Otherwise, it's not service. You know, it's something else, but it isn't service. So how are we going to find out what pleases Krishna? We have to have a guru. Otherwise, we're just going to guess. You could say, well, there's the Shastra, but the Shastra gives rules that are applicable in different circumstances. The Shastra is something like, Robert compares it to a pharmacy shop, a drugstore, or as they say in some parts of the world, a chemist shop. You know, there's medicines for everything. Now, all of the medicines, at least in theory, are beneficial, but they're not all beneficial for everyone in all circumstances, and therefore what medicines you take, you have to have a doctor. You can't just say, well, it's in the medicine shop, therefore I can take it. So what's in the Shastra may be applicable or may not be applicable. It depends on the circumstances. There are all kinds of regulations in the Shastra, even in the Bhagavatam, which are not applicable at the present time, like Brahmacharya should wear matted hair or deerskin, for example. But when Chaitanya Mahaprabhu saw, I think it was Brahmananda Bharati in deerskin, he was very displeased. He said, I don't want you wearing deerskin, even though that's in the Shastra. The one should wear deerskin. So you have to have a guru. The guru needs to also be present to know you and your circumstances and how one should apply the angas of bhakti. Therefore, the three angas of bhakti that apply to guru are the most important. 
the Nupur Goswami also gives five as the most powerful. He gives five angas of bhakti as the most powerful. Does anybody know what those are? Hearing the Bhagavatam, living in a holy place. Okay, right. Hearing the Bhagavatam, living in a holy place. Chanting holy name. Chanting holy name. Anybody else? Associating with devotees and serving the deity. And you'll see that Srila Prabhupada arranged his ISKCON society around those five things. Srila Prabhupada arranged all of our activities in ISKCON, you'll notice, are arranged around those five. Serving the deity, living in a holy place or creating a holy place where you live, associating with the devotees, hearing the Shastra, especially Bhagavatam, chanting the holy name. And of course, of all five, chanting the holy name is the most potent and permeates all the others. We chant the holy name when we read the Shastra. We chant the holy name when we worship the deity. Hopefully we chant the holy name when we associate with devotees. <laughs> we chant the holy name when we chant the holy name. And when you go to a holy place, you chant the holy name. So those are the five most potent. Now, these 64 angas of bhakti can be divided up into several different categories. We can divide them up into the categories of the nine processes of devotion given by Prahlad Maharaj in the seventh canto of the Bhagavatam. And when we talk about the processes of bhakti, we generally talk about these nine, which are? Shavanam Kirtanam Vishnusanam Okay, let's have them in English. So the first is hearing, chanting, remembering, which probably sometimes says memorizing. Serving lotus feet. Serving lotus feet. Offering prayers. Offering prayers and obeisances. So, Shravanam, Kirtanam, Vishnu, Smaranam, Padasevanam, serving lotus feet. Archanam, which is? Worshiping. Worshiping. Vandanam, which is offering prayers and obeisances. Dasyam is? Service. Becoming a servant. Becoming a friend. Sakyam being a friend. Atmanivedana surrendering. Everything. So we also see that Srila Prabhupada organized his ISKCON movement around these nine processes of devotional service that Prahlad Maharaj gives. And the 64 items that Rupa Goswami gives can be categorized under these nine. They can also be categorized into what I want to have as the running theme of these three days, which is body, mind, and words. So we can look at the 64 angas and put them in body, mind, and words. So let's go through these nine processes for a minute and, and, and talk about each one of them and what they mean. Uh, as we're doing this, I'd like us all to think about two things. One, that Srila Prabhupada gave all of his disciples and followers a minimum a following in these areas. So he said, if you become my disciple, then I expect a certain minimum following in these nine processes. But he also said that one should perform these angas or limbs of bhakti according to one's personal taste. So the way I understand that is that there's a certain minimum and then beyond that minimum, what you do beyond that minimum 
depends on your personal taste, depends what inspires you. And that may also change different times of your life. And this is something we should understand very clearly because I see that devotees will sometimes assume that how they're motivated and how they're inspired is going to be how everybody's inspired. Or the way that they're inspired is the right way. And everybody else has to do that way. So you find some people who are really inspired for hearing. I know some devotees that, you know, reading the Bhagavatam and hearing is the main thing that inspires them in Krishna consciousness. And they put a lot of energy into preaching that everybody else should spend as many hours with the Bhagavatam as they do. Whereas somebody else, their main enthusiasm may be chanting. And they may be in kirtan for 10, 12 hours a day. They may be traveling the world having kirtan. And they tell everybody else, hey, everybody's got to sit down and just do kirtan all day. It's interesting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And then you have somebody else who loves to memorize shlokas. You know, you have our Dravida who's always memorizing shlokas. Plus, he puts the English into poetry and song. So he sings the English of the shlokas. So he'll sing the Sanskrit or Bengali, and then he'll sing the English. And he's made all these slideshows that go along with the shlokas. And he's got his a little gizmo, a little electronic gizmo that has his favorite slokas on them. And he'll be there during Japa time. In the middle of Japa time, he'll stop and start singing slokas. You know, and it's, it's, it's very nice. But some people, you know, they, they find it very difficult even to memorize ten slokas. Well, some people can memorize thousands and thousands. Some people can hardly memorize ten. So if someone says, well, everybody's got to memorize, you know, 300 slokas. So that depends on the person. Or some people really like going to the holy places. They're always going on pilgrimage. They love to visit each of the holy places and know all the stories associated with each of the holy places. As soon as they have time and money, immediately they go to the holy places and they're serving the holy places. And other people, you know, maybe they've gone once in their life. And that's not their particular interest. And so forth and so on. And that's not only fine, it's what we expect. Because we are preaching a philosophy of personality and individuality. And I find it ironic, to say the least, that in our preaching of a philosophy of individuality, we sometimes try to squash everybody into the same mold. Atmavan Manyatejagat is a Sanskrit term for this. That I think everybody's like me. When I first became a teacher of children, I mean, this is very embarrassing, but I, I'm hoping it will help you. I, I thought that I could train all of the children to think the way that I think. And I couldn't, because they're not me. And at first I became very frustrated. You know, I, I thought there was something wrong with my teaching methods, that I wasn't able to get all of my students to have the same kind of mental processes that I do. And it took me a while, I'm very embarrassed to say that it took me a while before I understood that I was trying to do something that was wrong and, and in a sense you could say violent and harmful to try to, to get people to be something that they were not. And once I understood that, then my teaching really took off. When I, once I understood that everyone has their own way of being and their own way of being is what's perfect for them. And that Krishna is pleased with that variety. That Krishna is a, you know, what I like to call variety man. If there's something we can tell about God just with our senses and logic, is that Krishna loves variety. 
And I give the example all the time of snowflakes. Why does Krishna make every snowflake different from every other snowflake? Who cares? You know, snowflakes exist just for a few moments, and they're not even alive. They're matter. Why does Krishna care that each speck of ice crystal that lasts for a few seconds has to be different from any other particle of ice crystal that's ever existed past or future. So that's the extent to which Krishna likes variety. You know, each of us have a different DNA from everybody else. We each have a different fingerprint. That's just the body, which is very ephemeral. What to speak of the differences of the person. So Krishna really, really likes variety. Even identical twins are not totally identical. They're mirror images of each other. And of course, they're not identical in personality. And I give the example all the time in a different context about how much variety there is of food. There's so many different kinds of grains. And then there's kinds of kinds. There's more than one kind of wheat. Of course, if the big agribusiness has their way, they'll reduce the varieties instead of increase them. But by Krishna's way, there's so many kinds of vegetables. And then there's kinds of kinds. There's kinds of tomatoes. There's kinds of peppers. Right? And so many kinds of fruits, and then there's kinds of mangoes. I remember when I first went to uh, Trinidad and Tobago, and the, devo- the devotees there greeted me at the airport, and they said, we've given you a gift, and they have this carefully wrapped apple. And I said, well, apples are kind of normal for me. <laughs> I said, I was hoping to get a mango. And they said, well, what kind of mangoes? We have 40 different kinds of mangoes. So I had no idea that there were 40 different kinds of mangoes. They said, there's so many mangoes here, they're rotting by the sides of the road, which is what actually they were doing. So, you know, there's so many different kinds of mangoes, so many different kinds of apples. And each soul is unique. So Natsang Goswami, in his uh, one purport in Bhagavatam uh, 10, I think it's it's 10, 14, 51, I believe, he talks about how God has unlimited qualities and... Each jiva, there's an unlimited jiva, and each jiva is, is attracted by a particular quality of the Lord. We also each have our particular relationship with the Lord. You know, Rupa Goswami in Bhakti Vasamrita Sindhu and then also in Ujwala Nilamani gives categories, you know, there's the five main rasas, which I'm sure we all know, that there's on reverence, servant, friendship, parental, lover... But then there's subcategories of those. There's different kinds of friends. There's different kinds of lovers. There's, and then there's subcategories of those subcategories and subcategories of those and sub, 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 until there gets to be you and you and you and you and me. And we finally end up in our own sub, 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 category. We have our own particular combination of who we are. So Srila Prabhupada did give us a minimum. Everybody should chant at least 16 rounds a day. So that's a minimum. But you can always chant more. And everybody should go to at least one or two classes a day. But you can do more. Everybody should at least attend the Mangalarti. Everyone should at least do that much deity worship. Be in attendance at the Mangalarti. But you can do more. You can become a pujari. You can worship in so many things. So in each of these, you can do more. And which one you do more of depends on your personal depends on what, what fills you, again, this bhakti rasamrita sindhu. What is it that fills you with this bhakti rasamrita sindhu? What is it that really connects you 
with Krishna. So let's go through these briefly. Shravanam is hearing. Of course, this also would include reading. So when we're reading the books or we're hearing the books, but often talked about how hearing was the most important of the processes of bhakti. Because if you don't hear about Krishna, you can't really do the other ones very well. Something like Rupa Goswami says, these three with guru are the most important. If you don't know anything, how are you going to chant if you haven't heard the mantra, you won't know what to chant. How will you be able to serve the deity if you don't know how to serve the deity? You have to hear about how to serve the deity. How we, I mean, you might, by accident, what we call a gata sukriti, you might accidentally visit a holy place. You might accidentally do some service for the deities. But to really be engaged full on in the practice, practice of bhakti, one would need to hear. So this hearing also goes on in our kirtans, where we have a call and response. We're hearing the other person chant, and then we are chanting. Then chanting kirtanam, this can refer to, of course, chanting on beads. It can refer to chanting with song, with instruments, by ourselves, in a small group, in a large group, with just other serious devotees, out with the general public. It also refers to what I'm doing right now. If we're talking about Krishna, anytime we're talking about Krishna or talking about the philosophy to anyone, that is also kirtanam. And Bhaktisanta Sarasvati said the publishing of books was beating the big murdanga. It was a big kirtan. So anything involved with publication, and of course now we have far more than book publication, anything involved with publication and distributing knowledge. So hearing is receiving and kirtanam you're you're giving. Then smaranam. Smaranam means to remember. And in the Nectar of Instruction, text 8 purport, and I'm going on my screen because the people who are on the internet can see my screen. So, as I, what happens to eyes is you is I realize that I have something that I could show people so then I show So the nectar of um, instruction gives us stages of remembering. So this can be a whole class in and of itself. I'm just going to go through it very briefly. The first is Shravanadasha, where one is, is hearing and reading the scriptures. Then there's Varanadasha, where one starts to accept one's particular relationship with Krishna, where the, the knowledge of one's particular way of being with Krishna in our eternal form starts to arise. And one becomes very attached to hearing. One is still following the rules of the scripture because they're in the scripture, but one is starting to remember Krishna's pastimes and Krishna's forms more spontaneously. Then there's Smaranavasta. At this point, uh, one has not yet fully realized one's identity, but has become more of, of one's intuition, and there, then one remembers Krishna's pastimes in, in one's mind and enters into, one, into Krishna's pastimes in one's mind, and that has five stages. Interrupted. I think of this like making burfi. If you've ever made burfi, you put milk on the stove, and at first you turn on the heat, but you can do other things. And then gradually as the milk starts boiling, you have to give it more and more attention. Pretty soon you're stirring it all the time, 
and gradually as the water evaporates, it gets thicker and thicker and thicker, and you have to stir it more and more vigorously until it becomes perfect. So first, this recollection is interrupted. You're remembering Krishna and Krishna's name, form, qualities, and pastimes, and then you're, you're forgetting. Then gradually it becomes uninterrupted, like you're stirring the milk constantly, but then it becomes concentrated, like the milk becomes concentrated. You're, you're, you've gone from being uninterrupted to being concentrated. You can do something constantly without being concentrated on it, yes? So first it's interrupted, then it's not interrupted, then it's not interrupted and concentrated, then it's not interrupted, concentrated, and expanded, and then one enters into full samadhi, where one's fully absorbed in Krishna's name, form, qualities, and pastimes, where one is also entering into the lila in one's mind. Now, all of that is happening in, on the platform of mind. The next stage, called apanadasha, or also samadhi. So there's two samadhis. There's the mental the mental samadhi, and then there's the spiritual samadhi. The spiritual samadhi is Krishna has become attracted by one's efforts at remembrance. As Lord Kipuladev explains in the third canto, you use the mind as a hook to capture the Lord. And he has now manifested his form and pastimes in the heart of the devotee. So at that time, one actually sees one's eternal spiritual body and the various aspects of one's eternal spiritual form will become revealed uh, generally, gradually, one after another, Bhaktivinoda Thakur talks about 11 aspects of the spiritual body. And at this point, one is absorbed, one is in the material world, but one is absorbed in the spiritual. And the last stage of remembrance, Sampati Dasha, is where one sees Krishna in the spiritual world, not only in the heart, but face to face. So that is the final stage of remembrance. Srila Prabhupada also talks about remembrance as memorizing. So whenever we're memorizing, like my god-brother Paladananda Swami has memorized Krishna book in Bhagavad Gita. We were once at a festival in Russia. We were all taking prasadam together, and he said, would any of you like to hear a chapter from Krishna book? So we said, sure. We thought he's going to pull out a book. But he just started speaking from memory. So we were saying that earlier with Dravida, who's memorized all these thousands of slokas, or people who memorize a lot of slokas, or people who memorize a lot of pastimes or section, that is also in the category of smarana. Then padasegana means to serve the lotus feet of the Lord. This means doing service for anything that's connected with Krishna. I mean, it can mean literally massaging the Lord's lotus feet, as Lakshmi Devi does. But this also means serving Tulsi, means serving the devotees, visiting holy places, anything that's connected with the Lord. Any service we do in any way that's connected with the Lord is Padasevana. Then Archana means specifically worship of the deity form. So this would mean being in the temple room watching the arati, offering arati ourselves, dressing the deity, bathing the deity, cooking for the deity, glorifying the deity, and so forth. Uh, cleaning the, the temple of the deity. And of course there can be things which are not directly deity worship, but we may have that mood. I'm cleaning my house for the deities. Then Vandanam is both Verbal prayers and bodily prayers. So verbal prayers are in uh, basically three categories by Nithi Goswami. One are prayers of humility, uh, one are prayers of glorification, and an advanced level are prayers asking for our eternal service. So this verbal prayer can be reciting the prayers of the Acharyas. Like the other day we were meditating on Bhaktivinoda Thakur's prayer, Mana Mandire. Mama Manna Mandire, 
So if we're meditating on someone else's prayers, we're meditating on Arjuna's prayers to, in the 11th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, we're me- meditating on the prayers, uh, well, the prayers that Srila Prabhupada <coughs> to sing in the Artik ceremonies. That's Vandanam, but it's someone else's prayers. And also we can have our own prayers. We can also write our own prayers and compose our own poetry, etc., and, and pray to Krishna. Then there's bodily prayers, which means offering of obeisances. So that's putting your body in a state of prayer. So there's, you can, of course, just fold your hands. Namaskar. Or you can have uh, five-point obeisances, which is what we generally in the ISKCON would call offering obeisances, where you get down on your knees and your elbow and your hand. And then there's eight-point obeisances or dandavats, uh, where you fall down like a stick. So these are... The three ways of offering obeisances, namaskar, five-point, and eight-point obeisances. Um, and by the way, sometimes people think that women shouldn't offer dandavats, but that's not from Sadhu Shastra Guru. In the Shastra, there's many, many instances of women offering dandavats. So Aditi offered dandavats to Vishnu, the Nagapatnas offered dandavats to Krishna. Um, we just recently had an article in Back to Godhead with many, many examples given and, and of course, Prabhupada had the women offer dandavat. So that's vandanam. And when you offer prayers with your body, you're supposed to add the voice. So whenever you offer namaskar or five-point or eight-point obeisances, you're also supposed to say some prayer. Just like when we offer obeisances, we say the prayers to Srila Prabhupada. However, when you offer prayers with your voice, you do not have to add something from the body. So if you have the body, you're supposed to add the voice. In fact, that's an offense, when an offense in deity worship is to offer obeisances without offering a prayer. Uh, but you can offer a prayer without offering obeisances. So all that's in the category of, dun- of vandanam. Then dasyam, this dasyam is not the same as the rasa dasyam. There's certain souls who their eternal relationship with Krishna is in the mood of a servant. But this dasyam of the nine processes is not like that. This dasyam is done by everybody. It's where we're doing the sort of things that a servant would do. We're following orders. We're especially, we're following the orders of our superiors. So if Guru gives an order, we follow it, that's dasyam. You know, if, if the head of the temple gives an order, we follow it. We're working in the kitchen, and the person who's organizing the offering says, hey, cut the potatoes for me. Like I heard a story the other day that somebody was cooking, and he had an assistant, and he said to the assistant, I want to make a pumpkin subji. Would you please peel and cut these pumpkins? And the person cut them but didn't peel them. So then the cook had to take, take each piece of cut pumpkin and peel it. So the person who was cutting and peeling was doing dasyam. They were doing service. Of course, you could say everything is dasyam because everything we're doing is, is service. Then sakyam, this sakyam or friendship, is also not the friendship of rasa. It is not like Arjuna's Krishna's friend or Sridham's Krishna's friend. So it's not that the sakyam of the nine processes is just reserved for those people and that the gopis can't do sakyam or Mother Soda can't do sakyam. This sakyam is for everybody and it has two main categories. Krishna is my friend and I'm Krishna's friend. So I have a whole presentation I give just on Sakyam. So Krishna is my friend means I trust Krishna. I trust he's going to take care of me. He's going to maintain me. He's going to protect me. I trust that what he does is good. 
it, it's that kind of satyam is an attitude. It's very, very much an attitude that I have faith in Krishna, that he's doing the right thing for me, that he cares about me, that he's my friend. And this satyam is very much related to the items of surrender, that Krishna is my maintainer and Krishna is my protector. The other part of satyam is Krishna can trust me. I have Krishna's interests in mind. I'm going to work for him. And Srila Prabhupada particularly relates this to being a preacher. That what Krishna wants the most is he wants all the living entities to surrender to him. So when we're going out and preaching, we may be doing kirtanam, but we may also be doing sakyam. That Krishna, I want to bring these souls to you. I want to please you by bringing you these souls. I want to make. I want to do something to make you happy. So whenever we're in this mood of, I really want to do something to make Krishna happy, that's this sakyam. Then Atmanivedanam also has different categories. It can mean surrendering your property, using your home in Krishna's service, using your items in Krishna's service. It can mean using your body in Krishna's service. It can mean surrendering your life. Saying to Krishna, from this day on, I'm yours, and I'm, going to, I'm dedicating myself to you. All right. So now we're going to do our little exercise. The problem with showing it on my screen here is that I'm not going to be able to show enough of it for everybody to see it, unfortunately. Let's see how to do this. So what I'd like you to do is uh, hopefully you have something to write with. Is I'd like you to go through the list and you can we you only don't have that much time, so you can choose which of these you want to do. You can go through and mark which ones of these are body, or mostly body, which ones of these are mostly speech, and which ones of these are mostly mind. Or, you don't have glasses. Or you can mark which, most of, which ones of these are hearing, which ones of these are chanting, which ones of these are remembering, which ones of these are serving the lotus feet which ones of these are surrendering everything, which ones of these are offering prayer. So you can find body, mind, and words in them. You can also find the nine processes. And if you're really fast, you could go through and find both. The other thing that I'd like everyone to do is go through these and figure which ones you really like. Which ones you really like. So is there one here or two or three that you really, really like and you're already doing? Or are there one, two, three here that you really like but you're not doing yet and you'd like to do? You're saying, well, that's something I'd be really interested in doing that I'm not doing yet. So I'm going to take about seven or eight minutes uh, to go through this. For those of you listening on the recording, you can do this exercise by going to Nectar of Devotion, Chapter 6, where you have the whole list of the 64 Angas of... Uh, bhakti. Okay, so you can also work on this some more on your own since we have some limited time. So, uh, did anybody look for the body, mind, and, and words? Anybody look for body, mind, and words categories? You did? I did. I was thinking you said body, mind, and spirit. So. But anyway, I didn't okay. Be a surrendered soul in every condition. Be a surrendered soul, that would be which, cat, which area? In the mind. In the mind. Okay. 
Without many Vedanam, yeah. All right. Anyone look for the nine processes of hearing, chanting, remembering, serving the lotus feet? Anybody look for that? Yes? Can you tell me some of what you got in any of the categories? Okay. Hear about the Lord in his past times to Srimad Bhagavatam and Shravanam, yes? Hmm, what would we put that? Do whatever is done with great care and devotion for the deities. What would we put that under, you think? Yeah, well, she's looking at the nine processes. So under the nine processes, we, we could put that under archanum for the deities, but we could also put it under... What did you put it under? I think we could put it under Dasya. Yeah, really thinking of, of myself as the Lord's servant. You could perhaps even put it under Sakya. You know, that I'm, I'm really trying to be Krishna's friend. Okay. Did anybody find something here that they really like and were, that they were surprised by in some way? That they said, wow, that's something I really, really like, but I didn't realize it. Something that surprised me. What's that? Hearing the Bhagavatam. Hearing the Bhagavatam, okay. Associating with devotees that are more advanced. Associating with devotees and more advanced. Who are more advanced, okay. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and chanting Java. Chanting Java. What surprised me when I went through this list, and gosh, I've taught this sort of thing so many times, but still, what surprised me when I was thinking about what I liked is some of the things I like are like be free from the spell of lamentation and loss or jubilation and gain. I really like trying to do that. You picked that one too. I'm like, I really like, I, I can't say I do it, but I really like trying to do it. <laughs> I like it as, as a meditation and as an aspiration. That was one of the first ones. Interesting, interesting. And it's funny because I think right now was the very first time I looked at this list in terms of what I like to do. And that kind of thing jumped out at me. And I thought, I really like to do that sort of thing. Huh? Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Anything here that you, that you looked at and said, I'd like to start doing that? Something that maybe you're not already doing, but you thought, well, I'd like to do some more of that. Offering RT. Okay. Anything else you looked at and you said, well, I'd really like to do more of that. I'd like to start doing it, or I'd like to start doing more of it. Also, be careful in ordinary dealings. Being careful in ordinary dealings. So that's particularly uh, covering things like ethics and morality having legitimate sources of income. And I think this is something that sometimes devotees struggle with this because they think, well, we're devotees, therefore we're, we're exempt from ordinary morals and ethics. We're all Maharaj here on the battlefield of Kurukshetra, Krishna telling us to lie. You know? and, and therefore we... But this is one of the 64 angas. I thought it was interesting being put in there with all chanting and Bhagavatam. Mm. And then that's that, that this so is... It shows the critical... 
nature of it. I'm repeating for the people who can't hear you through the microphone. So that it's interesting that that's one of the 64 angers of bhakti is put in there with hearing and chanting to be careful in ordinary dealings. Anything else on this list that, that jumps out at you? The other thing I do with this list, because this list has been jumbled, it's been taken out of the of Rupa Goswami's order, and one of the other things I do with this list is if we were studying Nectar Devotions, I ask people to, to find what are the ten first things that Rupa Goswami mentions, what are the ten positives, what are the ten negatives, and like that, which we didn't have time to do that here, but it can also be used uh, for that. I also like to take all kinds of risks and perform all endeavors for Krishna's benefit. I really like that one also. Uh, so early days of this guy. Yeah, yes, 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 yes. Uh, this one, when the deity is being born for a stroll in the street, a devotee should immediately follow the procession. So that's like Rathiyatra, or there's some temples where the deities are regularly taken out on the stroll. It's like in Mayapur during a large part of the year, every Saturday the deities go out on an elephant. Well, there's, uh, when I was in Sri Rangam, they told me that 340 days a year they take the deities on procession. And they, all, they, eat, they have 340 different carriers and carts that the deities uh, ride on if they take the deities in procession. All right, tomorrow we're going to be looking at service according to our psychophysical nature, how we can use our various talents and abilities in service. Panchatattva ki jai. Arctic's starting now, so I need to stop. Hare Krishna. Krishna Prastaya Bhutale Shri Mate Bhakti Vedanta Swami Niti Namane Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauravani Pacharani Nirvasesis Nivali Paskajade Satane Vande Hamsham Guru Shri Utah Padakamana Shri Guru Vaishnavam's Chas Kam Sagujatam Sahagana Ravinatam Vitam Sam Sajiva Sadvaitam Sadhutam Havijana Sarita Krishna Chaitanya Deham Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Vita Shri Sorry, we are a little late today. So I'm also giving this class over the internet. So we have a lot of people listening from all over the world. That's why I have my computer and my headphone here. Is there a link available on the website? Excuse me? Is there a link available on the website? Yes, yes, there is at isanga.org. So this is September 21st, 2013 in Honolulu, Hawaii, and this is part three of practical service. So, so far, we've looked at service in a general way, how, how our original position is as a servant of Krishna. That's our sanatan dharma, to be a servant. And how when we come to this material world, we want to be a master. In fact, we evaluate our relationships by how much other people are serving us. Mm. If my wife serves me very nicely, she's a good wife. My husband serves me very nicely, he's a good husband. If my boss serves me very nicely, he's a good boss. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, we evaluate things in terms of how much am I the master instead of how much am I the servant. But the problem is we can never find happiness with being the master. It's, it's not our position. We're not the master. So as we said, Krishna is the giver. Krishna is not the ultimate taker. Krishna is really the ultimate giver. Krishna is the ultimate giver as the benefactor, Sri Ramasarabhutanam. 
Prabhupada translates as the benefactor of all living entities. Krishna is giving like this. Here's my blessings, here's my blessings, here's my blessings. So in this world we try to imitate, and we also try to give like that. But in this world, when we do that, we become very unhappy. It's not our position. And we talked about in the beginning how that this shilanam, which is what we're focusing on in these three parts, this active service is explained by Jiva Goswami as outward action in terms of the body, the mind, and the words, and esoteric action in terms of affection and despair of the mind. These feelings of affection for Krishna and despair, when will I get Krishna? So this silanam is manifested as the 64 angas of bhakti, which is what we discussed yesterday. We had that list of the 64 angas, how the three most important were? Three most important of the 64 angas. They are? Accepting initiation, following instructions of guru, and accepting the guru. Can't, yeah, okay, you've got to accept the guru, take initiation, follow the instructions. Those are the three most important. Why are those the three most important? That's how spiritual life begins. You can't do anything else without them. How are you going to hear? Where are you going to hear from? The sky? Your own mind? The talk show host on the television? Who are you going to hear from? You have to accept who's your authority that you're going to hear from. And you make a commitment. So everything else flows from that. Therefore, the three most important. And the five most potent? Um, Worshipping the deity? Chanting, yes? Hearing Bhagavatam. Hearing Bhagavatam. Holy place. place, And associating with devotees. And then we read through the list in terms of also hearing, chanting, remembering, right? Serving the lotus feet. And we talked about what each of those mean. There's a lovely purport in the seventh canto where, and I can give you the verse in a second here, where Prahlad Maharaj. Yes, 7 5 23. And Srila Prabhupada, in that purport, goes through each of those in depth. Of course, Rupa Goswami also goes through each of those in depth in the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. And of the 64 Angas, they can be categorized according to those nine processes. So some of the 64 Angas are going to be categorized under Pratasevanam, some are going to be categorized under Smaranam, and so forth. And they can also be categorized as body, mind, and words. Some of them are mostly body, some of them are mostly mind, some of them are mostly words. And we talked about how Srila Prabhupada gave each of us, gave all of us, we should say, a minimum of following of those 64 Angas. That anyone who's my disciple, anyone who's my follower, they have to perform these 64 angas at least to this bottom standard. Chant 16 rounds at least every day, right? Attend the Mangalartik, have a Bhagavatam class every day. So this was the minimum for everybody. And then above and beyond that, it's according to our desire, desire our tastes. Taste. Specifically said one should perform these 64 angas according to one's taste. And this may change over our life also. And that we should be very, very careful of not imposing our taste on others. That this is the only way, you know, everybody. What I, I like to study six hours a day, so you should like to study six hours a day. Or 
I like to study in this way, you should like to study in this way. I get asked frequently, Ormila, how do you study the scriptures? And I don't usually answer that question. I said, well, that's my way isn't going to work for you. At a fascinating, absolutely fascinating time at a ladies' retreat in New Zealand where the women asked me, give a seminar on how to study Prabhupada's book. So I got everybody in a circle of 20, 25 ladies, and we read around and I said, how do you study Prabhupada's books? How do you? And it was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. One woman concentrated on the Sanskrit words in the sloka, and she found other slokas that had those same words. Another person, and I'm not making this up, turned the purports into poetry. Another person turned the purports into questions and answers. Other people liked to study with a partner. You know, there was a, as many varieties of ways to study as there were people in that room. So we talked a bit yesterday about how Krishna is a variety man. He likes variety. He really likes individuality to such an extreme degree that it's almost unfathomable to us. You know, we human beings in the age of Kali, we like sameness. I think this is the opposite of spiritual life. The machine. Stamp out those car parts, make them all the same, you know? Make all the people the same. That's the, these <laughs> companies like Monsanto, they want us to have only one kind of corn. You know, Krishna wants us to have 40 kinds of corn. They want everybody to wear this, you know, the same kind of shoes and say the same things and be the same way. They want everyone to have the same kind of chairs and same kind of houses. You go to somebody's housing development, right? And all the houses yeah. are the same. <laughs> so Krishna is exactly the opposite. So with Krishna, everything's in harmony. Like in Dwarka, it looked like one designer, because they had, had designed the whole city. But yet there was all this variety. So now we're going to go on to another kind of variety. And this is the variety of how we serve Krishna according to our body and mind. Because this variety of tastes in the 64 Angas, certainly when we're not very advanced, that variety of taste is going to be, to a greater or lesser degree, a manifestation of our conditioned nature. You know, in my conditioned nature, I'm a musician. So I especially like singing. You know, in my conditioned nature, I'm an artist, so I could... It, it's, one may like some of the 64 angas because one has a conditioned nature like that. If someone's conditioned nature is they like to travel, so they may particularly like Padasevan and visiting the holy places. And if they weren't traveling to holy places, they'd be traveling, you know, to Alaska and the Panama Canal or something like that. It, it's really their conditioned nature. As we advance in devotional service, as our real personality starts to manifest, which is what it's supposed to be doing, we're supposed to be awakening our real self, then our tastes in the 64 angas start to be manifestations of who we are eternally. Just like you know, we read in the literature of the Goswamis, Nandamaj really likes to wear green. Lalita really likes to wear peacock-colored blue. Right? Each of the cowherd boys, they have their favorite food. Even Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, when he's serving the devotees prasadam, he gives them each particularly what they like to eat. You know, again, because we're in this very materialistic culture, we sometimes have this idea that when we become Krishna conscious, we're all going to be exactly the same. And sometimes we try to impose that on our devotees. Right? I mean, I just remember one time at a big festival... 
having a plate of prasadam, looking at one of the other devotees and saying, this prasadam is wonderful. And she said, all prasadam is wonderful. <laughs> so, but the Mahaprabhu's associates, there are certain things they especially like. And Lord Chaitanya would serve them what they like. Krishna does this also. You know, when Mother Yasoda leaves the room, Krishna takes these things off his plate and he knows each cowherd boy likes, and he gives that to them. And Krishna, Lord Kapiladev says that Krishna takes the form that the devotee likes to worship. And we were saying yesterday, Sanatana Goswami said that each of us is especially attracted to one of the infinite qualities of the Lord. There's infinite jivas, but the Lord has infinite qualities. And we're going to each particularly be related with one of those qualities. So as we progress in devotional service, our attachment to particular parts of the 64 angas will be more and more a manifestation of our actual spiritual nature and our spiritual personality rather than our conditioned personality. And that will be one reason why our taste in devotional service will change over the years. So when we first start practicing Krishna consciousness, there may be certain parts of the 64 angas that just fill us with with life and enthusiasm, and 20 years later, that may have shifted somewhat. But there's another part of variety in Krishna consciousness that has nothing at all to do with our spiritual nature. It's completely and totally a manifestation of our conditioned nature, what Prabhupada would call our psychophysical nature. What kind of body we have and what kind of mind we have in this life and it only has to do with this life, and in fact, some of it has to do just with parts of this life. It's not our real self at all. And in fact, these activities are not bhakti proper. Bhakti proper are the 64 angas, or the nine processes of bhakti. That's bhakti. These other activities are not in and of themselves bhakti. Prabhupada talks about in 9.30, Bhagavad Gita, how we have conditional activities and constitutional activities. Our constitutional activities are hearing, chanting, remembering, serving the lotus feet, being a friend, being a servant, surrendering everything. Our, const- our conditional activities are things like brushing our teeth and our particular job. and our- That's, They're not the same. Now, one beauty of the way that Bhaktivinoda Thakur, Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati, and Srila Prabhupada in particular are teaching the practice of bhakti yoga is that they're teaching us that we do not have to abandon all of our conditioned activities. That bhakti yoga does not demand abandoning all of one's conditional activities. Now, there does get to be a point in the practice of bhakti yoga there does get to be a point, as Krishna explains in the Bhagavad Gita, when we no longer have any need to do any of our conditioned activities. Nor does Krishna say, do we have any need to give them up? We don't have any need to do them or not do them. We can do them as service, or if Krishna doesn't want, we don't do them as service. However, as long as we're still identifying to any extent with our body and mind, we are going to be forced, Krishna explains to Arjuna, to act according to that nature of the body and mind. We will act according to our identity. And we could speak at great length about how our identity is really the source of all of our decisions. When we decide what we want to do, it's not on the basis of some detached cost-benefit ratio. It's on the basis of our identity. We think, I am this kind of person. 
Now, what would the idealized form of this kind of person do in this situation? This, this is how we think. And the people who've discovered this, perhaps not surprisingly, are the advertisers. Advertisers want to know how people think so they can take your money. So they've discovered that people make decisions based on identity. What does the, a good mother do? What does a good student do? What does a young, hip, single American male do? And when they advertise, they're advertising to identity. That, if you, if you really think about it, this is how we make our decisions. You know, I'm a devotee of Krishna. Okay, what's a devotee of Krishna supposed to do in this circumstance? I'm a member of ISKCON. What does a member of ISKCON do in this circumstance? And that's the basis of our decision-making process. Again, we could get into this in much more depth and, and give many examples, but we don't have time this evening, so I'm going to ask you to just trust me on this. And if you don't trust me on this, you can email me and I'll send you some source material and you can read the research for yourself. Now, our goal is to identify in a general way as Krishna's servant and then in a specific way according to who we are. We're supposed to come to the point that we realize, you know, oh, my eternal name is Krishna Das and, and I'm one of Krishna's servants and I polish his food every day, or whatever our eternal identity is. And then we would make decisions like that. But as long as we're still thinking, you know, I'm Krishna Das, Krishna Dasi in this world, and I've got, you know, what color body do I have? Okay, i got a white body or a brown body or a purple body or whatever, you know, do I have a female body or a male body? Do I have an American body or a Chilean body or a you know, Brazilian body? Am I married? Am I unmarried? Do I have children? Do I not have children? Am I an artist? Am I a musician? Am I a banker? Am I this? Am I that? As long as we still have those upadis, we are going to act according to those upadis. That's which is very clear to Arjuna, you can't not do that. He said, your choices are, do it for your selfish purposes or do it for me, Krishna says. And Krishna says, if you do it for your selfish purposes, you'll be lost, and if you do it for me, then you'll have no sin and I will guide you. And the Bhagavad Gita is very clear. When Krishna says, Sarvadharma and Parichaja, he's also saying to Arjuna, right before that, he's saying, Krishna, you're going to fight anyway. If you don't fight for me, you're going to go fight for yourself. You're going to fight for other reasons. And I, I see on a practical level in our Hare Krishna movement, we have some people who are really into fighting. Now, I'm personally convinced that a lot of those people are frustrated Kshatriyas. They don't have anything to govern and they don't have anywhere to fight, so they fight with the other devotees. And some of them, and that's not the only reason people fight, people fight for other reasons, but some of these people who are always fighting, you'll find they're really into justice and ethics and you know, they'll say, I'm, I really want fairness, and I want justice, and I want ethics, and I want morality. Well, that's Ksatriya. And if you think about it, the only Varna we have not facilitated in our Hare Krishna movement are the Ksatriyas. Historically speaking, when we first started this country, we facilitated Brahmins and Shudras. You had service to do in the movement. You had a place in the mission, no problem, uh, for various uh, historical and sociological reasons in the late 80s and 90s, we started facilitating Vaishas. Before that, if you were a Vaishya or Ksatriya, well, you were in Maya. That was all there was to it. But after a while, we started facilitating and activating the Vaishas. We started saying, hey, if you're a Vaishya, 
you have some, you have a place in, in Lord Chaitanya's movement, in Prabhupada's movement. We, we want you. We need you. And you have a way you can use your propensities in service. And we have not yet done that for the Ksatriyas. Most of our Ksatriyas are either pretending to be something else in the movement, or they're going and doing some Ksatriya business outside. Or they're being very frustrated and they're fighting with the devotees and yelling and screaming for justice and fairness and morality and ethics, all of which are the most lacking things also in our Krishna consciousness movement, by the way. You want to know what's really lacking in our Hare Krishna movement? It's care of the devotees, justice and ethics and morality, yes? As we have, because we haven't engaged our suchness. So these are our conditioned activities. And my point is, either you do them for Krishna or you'll do them for illusion. You can't not do them. You cannot not do them until you no longer identify with them at all. Until you only identify with your eternal, actual persona. Of course, even then, you may continue to act according to that external nature to set an example for others, or because Krishna wants you to do that as a service, because that's the kind of car you have. You know, once you don't identify with the car anymore, you don't have to drive it anywhere. You don't even have to drive it anywhere for Krishna's service. But you may still do so, even though it's no longer your identity. Is that clear for everybody? Did everybody follow all that? I was lost on one question. Yes. Why act, if we act according to our, our, our um, psychophysical nature, you said that's not bhakti. Why is that not bhakti yeah, proper? Can it, can it be bhakti? It can, be, uh, it can Krishna's be bhakti body? if it's in association with bhakti. But it's not bhakti. Although it can act like bhakti. And Prabhupada gives the example of putting the what in the what? The rod in the fire. Yes, the high iron rod in the fire. A, a iron rod is not fire. But if you heat it up, it will act like fire. So most of us don't see hot iron rods put in the fire in our life, unless you go to some sort of demonstration of blacksmithing. But we do see pots put on fire. I assume all of us either cook or walk by the kitchen when someone else is doing so. So we have all seen a pot put on a fire. So a pot is not fire at all. A pot's nature is not fire. But when you put the pot on the fire, anything put into the pot will receive the benefit of the fire. The pot will become as hot as the fire, as long as the pot is on the fire. So our conditional activities are not in and of themselves bhakti at all. Not at all. But when we're performing the 64 angas of bhakti, and we then offer those activities to Krishna, the effect upon us is the same as the effect of performing the nine processes of bhakti directly. So I'll, I'll just, I'm going to cycle through that again. Those activities are not bhakti, like the pot is not bhakti. But when we have those activities in connection with the process of bhakti and we offer them to Krishna, their effect upon us and their effect upon others is the same as the nine processes directly, although they are not the nine processes directly. Is that, so is that now? So Clear? brushing our teeth in the morning... Brushing our teeth so in the morning is not, brushing your teeth is not one of the 64 angas of bhakti. It's not one of the processes of bhakti. But if you're brushing your teeth because you want to make your body fit for devotional service and you're thinking this is Krishna's body, I need to take care of it, and you are also engaged in the process of bhakti proper. You have to have a fire under that pot. 
If you don't have a fire under that pot, then you're doing something else. You're doing maybe karma yoga, but you're not, even Krishna karmani, as described in Bhagavad Gita 12.10, working for Krishna, is defined as doing the angas of bhakti without an effort to think of Krishna. Doing the angas of bhakti externally. But it's still the angas of bhakti. Whereas when you're doing your, your conditional activities and offering them to Krishna, which of course Krishna recommends, whatever you do, whatever you eat, whatever you offer and give away, as well as all austerities you perform, do that, O Son of Kundi, is an offering unto me. And Ramananda Roy suggests this to Mahaprabhu as a way to perfection, and Mahaprabhu rejects it. He says that's external. Mahaprabhu doesn't start accepting anything until Ramananda Roy talks about pure bhakti. Bhakti without karma, an addition of karma and an addition of gyan. But we find that Krishna himself, 5,000 years ago, advised Arjuna to do both direct bhakti and offering of his conditional activities, as of course in the modern day does bhakti vinoda, bhakti sananta, and of course Srila Prabhupada. This is the yukta vairagya principle. Now, one of the main reasons that we're advised to do this is that we have to. Unless you're at a very advanced platform, you have conditional activities. So you have to do something with them. I think this is the most important point, and it's, it's the point of real honesty, that I have this particular nature, I'm going, to, I'm going to use it. I'm going to act on it. There isn't an option of, I'm not going to act on it. I can't count how many times devotees will say to me, well, I'm just going to give up my nature. And I said, well, according to Bhagavad Gita, you can't. So please stop trying. I mean, hundreds or thousands of times, I've had devotees tell me, my nature is just nonsense, my nature is keeping me from Krishna consciousness, I have to give it up and take a different nature. And I said, you can't. That's not your option. Your option is do it in a way that harms you and others or do it in a way that brings you closer to Krishna. So the main reason that we're being taught to engage our conditional nature is that we don't really have a good option. You can't walk away from it. You can't pretend you don't have it. And the other reason is that we are trying to benefit all of society. And in order to benefit all of society, we want to set an example in society and we want to build a society. And to set an example in society and to build a society, you can't just have people who go off alone in ashrams and just engage in the nine processes of service and don't interact in the world. There are many places where Srila Prabhupada says that you can do that. Technically, theoretically, you can just engage in the nine processes of devotional service and you don't need to engage in varna and ashram activities. But again, most of us need to do it for ourselves and we also are doing it as part of our preaching mission. So is that basis now clear? This foundational, philosophical foundation? Okay, let's look at what our conditional activities are. So let's look first at the ashrams. So the ashrams are, are four, brahmachari, grahasta, vanaprasta, and sannyas. And you can basically divide them into renounced ashrams and householder ashram, although there's still some difference. In the brahmachari ashram, theoretically, shastrically, one is engaged primarily in what are the, most of the brahmacharis doing? Study. Studying. 
Brahmachari means a student. Brahmachari means a student. So traditionally, the Brahmachari was a child. And one stopped uh, one's Brahmachari activity somewhere between 12 and 25 years old. One did not continue in the Brahmachari ashram after 24 or 25 years old, except for very, very unusual cases. Just like even in our modern world, most people are not students after 24, 25 years old. Now, some people are lifetime students. Some people get their, you know, MA, PhD, another PhD, an MD, postdoc research, and they never leave the university. They don't even become teachers. They stay as perpetual students. Now, there are people like this. Yes, maybe you've met some. They're constantly doing research and study. Maybe they publish something, but they don't even teach. So that's a very small, small, small percentage of the population in our times and in Vedic times. Now, somebody may be a brahmachari whole life in terms of being celibate whole life, but it would be very unusual that someone stays in the brahmachari ashram their whole life. In the brahmachari ashram, you're a child, and you're treated like a child. Somebody's telling you what to do. Somebody tells you when to wake up. Somebody tells you when to go to bed. You can't even eat unless you're called to eat. Your teacher has to say, come eat. You can't just look at your watch and say, it's prasadam time, and wander down and get something to eat. You can't have any personal money. Whatever money you collect, you give to your guru. You don't have any personal possessions. Right? In the Vanaprasta ashram, the main activity is... Vanaprastha. Vanaprastha. Traveling. Traveling to holy places and performing austerities. So these are the main activities in the Vanaprastha ashram. The Vanaprastha ashram, you give up your occupation. You no longer are making money. So in the modern day, that's people who are retired. They've retired from their work. They're not earning an income anymore. And even in the you know, ordinary society, people may travel. They don't usually travel to holy places. They travel to Disneyland or something like that. But this concept of, of giving up working and traveling, and of course the Vanaprastha also, uh, like the Brahmachari student, gives up sex life. So the Vanaprastha is celibate. They basically renounce sex and money. They renounce sex and money. They're no longer working in the world. And then the Sannyas Ashram, the main Dharma is? Uh, well, in our, in our ISKCON society, yes, although the main Dharma, according to Bhagavad Gita, is purification of existence and fearlessness. So the sannyasi doesn't, is basically dead. You're getting fear, fear, free of the fear of death by dying before you die. You know, what we're afraid of at death is I'm going to lose my identity. That's our main fear. I'm going to lose all the, everything I've invested into my relationships and my education and my, you know, this whole identity that I've built up, I have to walk away from. So the sannyasi walks away from that while they're still in this body. And that way, when death comes, there's no fear. And the sannyasi doesn't make, uh, traditionally doesn't make practically any effort to maintain themselves and so forth. So the main pleasure in the brahmachari, vanaprastha, and sannyasa ashrams is? What is the main pleasure? Spiritual activities. Spiritual activities. These are, these are conditioned activities. These are not constitutional activities. Freedom. Freedom, the main pleasure in the renounced ashram is freedom. 
That's the main pleasure. And the main sacrifice is that one is not engaged in activities of sense gratification or activities of occupation. So in the renounced ashram, one does not have an occupation. One is not acting in any of the varnas. The brahmachari is preparing for entering into the varnas as a householder. So the brahmachari is learning how they're going to, they're learning their occupation. But the vanaprastha and the sannyasi are no longer engaged in occupation. They're no longer engaged in occupation. They're no longer out there contributing to the world. They're not using that part of their psychophysical nature. So the Vanaprasta and Sannyasi, particularly, their pleasure is freedom and their sacrifice is they're no longer engaged in a whole set of conditioned activities. They're no longer engaged in any kind of varna. And one of the ways a person can tell if they're ready for the Vanaprasta or Sannyas ashram is whether or not they no longer have any interest in engaging in any kind of varna activities. Now you were saying spiritual activities. It's a fact that a person in the Vanaprasta and Sannyas ashram especially should be engaged almost exclusively in the 64 angas of bhakti. They shouldn't be engaged very much in conditional activities. That person is really ready to be engaged mostly in constitutional activities. The person in the brahmachari ashram is mixed because they're preparing for the grahasta ashram. So they have to be engaged in the processes of bhakti and they have to be engaged, as Prabhupada said in the second canto, for getting specific training for their livelihood. So they have to learn both about their varna and about bhakti. Then in the grahasta ashram, what's the main pleasure of the grahasta ashram? Family life, life, sex, gross sex, and subtle sex, and also security. What the grahasta has is security. This is my home, this is my business, this is my husband, this is my wife, this is my children, this is my bank account. And what are the grahastas' sacrifices? They sacrifice their freedom, yes. The vanaprastha and the sannyasi sacrifice their security. The grahasta sacrifices their freedom. Of course, they can get some freedom by having money. If you have a lot of money, you can have some freedom. But it's still not the same thing. You have to show up for your job. You have to be there maybe to milk the cow. You've got to be there to take care of your wife and your children and so forth and so on. The other sacrifice, of course, the grahasta makes is charity. So they're supposed to give a portion of what they earn to society in general, especially to the brahmacharis, vanaprastas, and sannyasis who've given up any means of livelihood. So in this, the ashrams are generally decided by age. If you're under 20, 25, you're probably in the brahmachari ashram. If you're 20, 25 to 50, 55, you're probably in the grahasta ashram. If you're like 50, 55 to 70, 75, you're probably in the Vanaprastha ashram. If you're over 75, 80, you're probably ready for the sannyasa ashram. Some people will stay in Vanaprastha till the end. Sannyasa is the only thing that doesn't have a corollary in a materialistic society. Materialistic society has students, family people, and retired people. So mostly what ashram we belong in is according to how old we are. It's, it's actually pretty simple. But it's also according to one's mentality. And one has to see, am I more attached to security or freedom? Please don't try to have both. Please don't try to have both. You know, so one thing that happens in the modern society is people try to have both. They try to have money and the pleasure of the opposite sex while still retaining their freedom, right? They just have some girlfriend or boyfriend. They have a job. They have an apartment. But they never get married. They never have kids. 
They don't help support the society. They think, let me, let me take all of the happiness of the renounced ashrams without the sacrifice, and let me also take all the happiness of the grahasta ashram without any of those sacrifices. So that's called stealing. That's called stealing. So if we're going to offer our, that part of our life to Krishna, we should do it preferably according to the Shastra. So if we're in the Brahmacharya ashram, we should be a Brahmachari according to Shastra, Grahastra, Grahastra according to Shastra, and so forth. We, we should try as far as possible to avoid making up our own ashrams. You know, well, I'm going to be like Robert called the bachelor dad. You know, the, the, he coined that as a term for a made-up ashram. You know, a sannyasi with a bank account and 500 adoring young women. So that's a made-up ashram. That's not a real ashram. You know, or the grahasta who doesn't have an honest occupation, doesn't contribute any charity to society, uses contraceptives to avoid having children. That's a made-up ashram. That's trying to get the happiness without the sacrifice. Now, Krishna is very kind, and you can offer anything to Krishna in a sense. Like Prabhupada said, if you drink wine, you can meditate on how Krishna is a taste of wine, but you can't offer your wine to Krishna. So if you're going to have some made-up ashram, you can still meditate on Krishna, but you can't offer the ashram to Krishna. Does that make sense to everybody? So if I'm going to offer my ashram situation to Krishna, then I have to perform this. I have to see what am I enjoying and what is the proper sacrifice to pay for what I'm enjoying. If I'm not willing to pay that sacrifice, I shouldn't be taking that enjoyment. Pretty, pretty simple. Okay, now let's go to the varnas. The varnas are only engaged in in the grahasta ashram. The only time of life that one engages in one's varna is in the grahasta ashram, although in the brahmacharya ashram, one should be preparing for one's varna. So your varna is, how do you maintain yourself? How do you earn your livelihood? What do you do for an income? And it also deals with how do you contribute to society? How are you part of the universal form of the Lord, Prabhupada explains. So... There's millions and millions and millions of jobs. Uh, Prabhupada says in the Nectar of Instruction, he said, in all phases of life, one has to perform devotional activity under the direction of the spiritual master in order to attain perfection in bhakti yoga. It is not that one has to confine or narrow one's activities. Krishna is all-pervading, therefore nothing is independent of Krishna. And Prabhupada also says, as I repeat a lot, this letter to Sukadeva in 1973, Krishna has given everyone something extraordinary and to serve Krishna with one's extraordinary talent means successful life. And this letter to Karandar in 72, Prabhupada said, there is some symptom of missing the point. The point is to be engaged in doing something for Krishna, never mind what is that job, but being so engaged in doing something very much satisfying to the devotee that he remains always enthusiastic. He will automatically follow the regulative principles because they are part of his occupational duty. By applying them practically as his occupational duty, he realizes the happy result of regulated principles. So there's millions and millions of different occupations, and we can engage any of them in Krishna's service as long as they're not sinful. So you can't be a mafia boss for Krishna, you can't run a slaughterhouse for Krishna, you can't run a prostitution ring for Krishna, you can't run a gambling casino for Krishna. You know, there's, there's really not a whole lot of things that you can't do for Krishna, but some things, you know, you really can't do for Krishna. I mean, I've met some devotees who are working in tobacco companies and gambling casinos, and I said, look, you really got to find another job. 
So other than things connected with meat-eating, intoxication, illicit sex, and gambling, any occupation can be offered to Krishna. We should find something, that Prabhupada said, which is very much satisfying to the devotee. So this is true not only in terms of the 64 angas of bhakti, but it's also in terms of what is our occupation. What is our occupation? So we find, what is it that makes us feel alive? Ayurveda talks about three basic bodily types, kapha, pitta, vata. And you have different kinds of food for different kinds of people. You know, in modern Western medicine, they don't think like that. They just say, this food is good for everybody, this food is bad for everybody. Of course, they change that assessment every few months. What's good for you, what's bad for you. And Western medicine has one kind of normal. There's one kind of BMI for everybody. You know, and that's it. Increasingly in Western medicine, they're finding that this is not true. That different people have different normals, and different people need to take different medicines according to their genetic makeup, even for the same disease. But Ayurveda has always known this, that the same kind of food can be medicine for one person and poison for another person, depending on our constitutional type. So this is true not only on the bodily level, but also on the psychological level. Each of us has a different kind of psychological food. We each have a different circumstance in which we feel alive or in which we feel imprisoned. So there are certain kinds of work that we go, yes, just like today I was working on my Govardhan Puja multimedia show, and I had just gotten some new devotional music about Govardhan. So I decided that I was going to replace some of my old music in the show with the new music. And then I decided I was going to add 12 new slides to go with this song from the Gopal Champu about who's lifted Govardhan Hill, or the slayer of Putana, who's worshipping Govardhan Hill, he who's crushed the pride of Kaliya, who's worshipping Govardhan Hill, he who's given fear to Kamsa, and all that. It was this wonderful song. So I decided I was going to put in 12 slides, one for each part of the song. Well, there's 10 parts of the song and then two extra in introduction and a little interlude. And so I took the music and I chopped up the piece that I wanted and then I put it in the slideshow and then I figured out how many seconds would be on each slide. And then I put the Sanskrit and the English on each slide and then I had to find a picture for each slide and so I was about seven minutes late to give the class. Why? Because I was so engrossed that I, I kept thinking, you've got to know what time it is. And I'm like, what time is it? You've got to look at the clock. I don't want to look at the clock. No, you've got to look at the clock. I don't want to look at the clock. <laughs> Oh my God, it's 4.45, am I going to make it? I'm going to make it, I'm, no, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it. Okay, just, just one more thing i got to get. Oh, this picture of Putin is not good enough. i got to let... And when I finished, I thought, my God, I love doing this. I absolutely love doing this. I love doing something that's creative and puzzle-solving. And I thought, what's so nice about this is, you know, I make an hour and a half of endeavor, and then I can bring pleasure to hundreds of devotees or thousands of devotees for so many years. You know, as I was doing it, I was thinking of how much the devotees would enjoy seeing it and meditating on Krishna. So I absolutely love doing that. But I, I was the treasurer in Chicago, and I was the treasurer in Boston, and I hated doing that. I hated it. You know, I'd work out the accounts, and there'd be a few pennies off, and my husband would say, you have to fix it until it's exactly right. I said, it's only three cents off. Just leave it. He said, no, you have to find the mistake. Uh, and I'd go through and I'd look and I'd look and I'd look. And then I'd find, of course, that the three-penny mistake was really a $30 mistake. And it would always end up something like that. And finally, I'd get everything to balance. But it was just, 
oh, I felt like I was trudging uphill through molasses when I did that work. You know, it, was, it just wasn't neat. So we all have this sort of experience where certain kinds of, of work we do, it's just, yes, this is my stuff. And other kinds of work we do, we're like, oh, can somebody else do this? And you know whether or not you found your work by how often you look at the clock, by whether or not you even know what time it is, by whether or not you missed a meal without noticing it, by whether or not you find all of a sudden that it's one in the morning. You know, that's how you know whether or not you found your, your thing, your element. What are the kinds of things that people can't stop you from doing, that you can do 12, 14, 16 hours a day and you don't want to stop. And as Prabhupada said, you'll naturally follow the regular principles because they're part of your work. I'm doing this for Krishna, I have to do it nicely. And you know what's not your work by the things that are just dragging, that you have to force yourself to do. You have to make a to-do list, and it's time to do them, and you say, oh, I'll do it in an hour. And you do something else first, and then something else first, and something else first, and something else first. And the whole time you're doing it, you're looking at the clock, and you go eat something even though it's not meal time, and, right? <laughs> and you go to sleep early, and whatever. You know? So those are the things that are not our nature. Is this, is this clear to everybody? So again, there's millions and millions of different things. And why, I've thought about this a lot, why has Krishna divided them? Why did Krishna take all the millions and divide them into four categories? Why couldn't we just leave them as millions? Because the four categories tells you that your occupation has a particular type of pleasure and a particular type of sacrifice. And that way you know how to offer it to Krishna. If you can figure out in which of the four categories your occupation goes, then you can figure out, okay, how do I sacrifice this for Krishna and what kind of prasadam am I going to eat? Just like we talked about in the ashrams. The prasadam you eat in the grahasta ashram is security and sense pleasure. The prasadam you eat in the renounced ashrams is freedom. And there's a different kind of sacrifice. Just like different kinds of uh, food. You cook them differently, yes? You don't prepare a cucumber the same way you prepare a zucchini, even though they're cousins. Does that make sense? Do you prepare them a little differently? The taste is different and the preparation is different. So in the different varnas, the taste is different and the preparation is different. So in the uh, Brahmana varna, the main thing you're enjoying is knowledge and truth. The main thing that's moving someone, that's, that's pushing someone in the Brahman varna is a desire for liberation. Again, this freedom component feeling purified, above the modes of nature. And the main sacrifice is it's your duty to protect truth. It's your duty to protect truth. And how do you do that? You don't take a salary from anybody. You're not under anybody's control. If you're under anybody's control, you're going to change truth to suit the whims of your employer. Just like the modern scientists and philosophers are almost all under, in the uh, employ of the government or business. And so they distort the truth. So the main sacrifice, if your enjoyment is liberation and your enjoyment is truth and philosophy, then your main sacrifice is you have to live independently, which means you may have to live very, 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 very simply. And your position is to protect truth at all costs, even your own personal costs. 
If the truth makes you look bad, it doesn't matter you speak the truth. The Xatriyas, their enjoyment is, I'm helping people. I'm taking care of people. The Xatriyas are like a great big mommy or a great big daddy. They're supplying for people. They're giving people water and electricity and, and education and medical care. They're taking care of people. Xatriyas collect money and redistribute it. They don't generate money. And what really moves Xatriya is the feeling that I'm important and I'm honorable and respectful and respectable and I'm righteous. That's the main enjoyment in Xatriya Varna. I'm a good person. I do the right thing. I'm moral, I'm ethical, I'm just, and I take care of people. I make sure that people have what they need. Then the sacrifices, you've got to take care of people in such a way that they come to Krishna. You can't just give them food and water and education. You have to engage them in yagya. And you also have to be submissive to the brahmanas. So although the Kshatriya has this mood of, I'm, I'm the big cheese, uh, still they have to be listened to the brahmanas who are going to guide them in truth. And the Kshatriyas have to not want to control the brahmanas. They're controlling the rest of society, but they don't control the brahmanas. So again, the Kshatriyas are protecting primarily people. The brahmanas are protecting primarily truth. Kshatriyas are protecting primarily people. Then the Vaishyas really want to enjoy wealth and opulence. And the Vaishyas, their uh, sacrifice is they're supposed to protect the sources of wealth, the natural resources, and the animals. The Vaishyas also are supposed to generate honest wealth, not just numbers on a screen. So they're supposed to generate honest wealth from natural resources and animals and protect the natural resources and animals and use them for Krishna. Then the main thing the Shudras want is immediate pleasure and relief from immediate pain. The Shudras don't care so much about getting a lot of money, nor do they care about getting a lot of power and reputation, nor do they care about getting a lot of freedom. They just kind of want to be happy now. And what the Shudras sacrifice is, is protecting the arts and the skills. Just like in our modern society, we were saying earlier, everything's factory done. The arts and the skills are all being lost. So the Shudras are supposed to protect the arts and the skills and have them connected again to the spiritual, that the dance, the music, the art, the theater, the furniture the cooking utensils, everything should be such that it's honoring the material resources and honoring Krishna. So that is their sacrifice. The sacrifice the sudras use is to take, have pious pleasures, to have pleasures that will connect them with Krishna. So the brahmanas protect truth, the ksatriyas protect people, the vaishyas protect the natural resources and the animals, and the sudras protect the arts and the skills and the things. And in turn, they each get their prasadam, that the shudras get beautiful sense pleasures, the vaishyas get wealth, the ksatriyas get reputation and power, and the brahmins get freedom. So you can see again, you know, each of the millions of occupations can fit into one of those categories. Sometimes they're sort of on the, on the cusp. Unfortunately, we don't have time to get into this in depth. But whatever occupation one has, one should think in terms of, what is it I want to enjoy? And, and please be honest here. If we're dishonest and we say, no, I don't want to enjoy anything, then we'll try to enjoy it anyway. We'll just do it separately from Krishna and we'll cause havoc. So if we're honest and say, I'm still identifying as a material being to some extent, 
And to whatever extent I'm still identifying as a material being, I have certain things that I like to taste. I have certain things I like to enjoy. And certain things I don't like. So those things that I want to enjoy, let me offer them to Krishna, and then I can enjoy the result as prasadam. And this is very nicely explained by Bhaktisanta Sarasvati in his commentary on Brahma Samhita, text 61. That one offers one's activity a sacrifice, and then one can enjoy that activity that one loves as prasadam. At a certain point, for most of us, we give that up. And we say, okay, now I'm just engaging, other than basic things like brushing your teeth, now I'm just engaging in the nine processes of bhakti. Now I'm no longer engaging in conditioned activities, unless Krishna wants me to, for some service. Now, of course, in all these ways of sacrifice, we should be sacrificing not just for Krishna, but for Srila Prabhupada's mission. And we should see, how can I take this thing I love this thing I want to enjoy, this thing I'm naturally good at, how can I use this in Srila Prabhupada's mission, in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's mission? And how can I sacrifice in such a way that I am pleasing Krishna and pleasing the devotees? And then going way back to the beginning, how can I do this with this feeling of affection for Krishna, for my guru, and for the devotees? We then have a harmonious society, as far as possible in the Kali Yuga, it's not going to be 100% possible, but as far as possible, we have a harmonious society and where we all give up these upadi, sarvapadi, the mimuktam, tapartani, namala, rishikesha, rishikesha, sevana, bhakti, rishite, and really come to just wanting to satisfy the senses of rishikesha. If we manage our societies like this, that everyone has some baseline things they have to do, everybody has to clean, you know, like everybody has to brush their teeth, everybody has to help clean the temple, everybody has to, you know. You can't say, well, that's not my occupation prabhu. Like I once met a devotee who said, I know I'm a Brahmin because I never want to do any physical work. You know, well, that's a bunch of nonsense. And you meet some of these caste Brahmins like this in India. There's one school that uh, is associated with our movement where one of our Western devotees suggested to some of the teachers that, well, you could have the children help you clean the classroom after school. She was asked to leave the school and never return. Why? Because the teacher she had spoken to was a caste brahmana who said, I never clean the room. That's only for the sutras. So just like all of us, whatever we're doing, we have to brush our teeth, we have to take a shower. So all of us, whatever we're doing, we should also be contributing to the basic uh, menial work of having this movement go on. None of us should ever think we're too good for menial service. At the same time, we should be engaged in bhakti according to our taste, and we should be engaged in arvana and ashram according to our age and our taste and help engage other people that way and trust that if we do that Krishna will send the people to fill in the gaps because if we're engaging people according to their propensities everybody's going to be very happy and if everybody's very happy then people are going to come like anything because even out in the world if you engage according to your taste and your nature if you're not offering it to Krishna it's not going to be ultimately satisfying it's not going to be ultimately meaningful. We're the only ones who can offer meaningful service to anybody. No matter how much you fit materially with your psychophysical nature, that's not ultimately satisfying. Robert says here, satisfying to the devotee, what's ultimately satisfying is when I'm who I am and I'm offering it to Krishna. Ultimately, spiritually, 
When I find out who I am, I'm such and such cow, I'm such and such gobi, I'm such and such coward boy, and I offer that to Krishna. But even the who I am in the temporary illusion, even who I am in the drama, to find out who I am and offer that to Krishna. And we're the only ones who can offer that. Nobody else can offer that. I'm not saying just Hanalulu is but you know, only those who follow this, this philosophy given by Krishna can offer this facilitate. So certainly we should do that. So I need to, and now because we're supposed to go on Harinam Sankirtan, so I apologize that I'm really trying to give like 10 hours worth of information in 50 minutes. I'm sure there's tons of questions, but hopefully we've discussed enough so that you have a start. And you can go on from there. And if, I, if by trying to do things very fast, I've skipped something important or distorted something, uh, please forgive me. Thank you. I'll go to Shiva Prabhupada. Yeah,